kind of podcast well with a little practice you could learn to be there you go there we go i was uh remarking upon how anemic the quotes page was for this movie and our guest volunteered that he still has lines memorized from this movie from 25 years ago so i <laughs> pimped him out as it were the comedic term that probably should not be used anymore i immediately regret saying hello everybody hi hi i'm griffin I'm David. It's a blank what check with this? Griffin and David. I don't know. I'm flipping it around. <laughs> sure. Yeah, do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's just introduce the movie. I mean, the podcast, whatever it is we do. It's a podcast about filmographies, filmographies which are made up of movies. So we can introduce both at the same time, David. Of course. Directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks, make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby this is a real bounce after a clear that led to a bigger clear there was a lot of back and forth with this man at the beginning of his career the man we're talking about of course is sam raimi uh it, yes that is right we are talking about sam raimi the podcast is called podcast me to hell and the movie we're talking about his second film his second proper do you want to acknowledge this here because people have been yeah angry people were like are you going to talk about that movie, It's Murder, which was like a full-length movie. It was never really released. Yeah. Uh, but his Super 8 movie. And the answer was like, no, we're not. Sorry. I mean, I think it is... You can watch it, right? Like, is it like an extra on a DVD or something? Like, is it, uh, is it kicking around somewhere? Because there's this sort of question of like... Uh, what uh, Edgar Wright has that movie, A Fistful of Fingers... That one counts. That one really came out as much as he is, I think, a little embarrassed by it. Like, that did have a release. He said it came out in literally one theater. Well, you know. But it still is. Uh, right. You know, it has a poster and all. Anyway, look, Crime Wave is Sam Raimi's second movie, really, I would say. Yeah, I'm seeing its murder split into parts in a very low transfer on Daily Motion. That's what I saw. So I was kind of like, yeah, thank God we right. didn't do that. This movie is called Crime Wave. Do you want to know something, Griff? I want to know everything, David. Okay, well, I don't know if I can do that. But this movie came out in America. It, you know, it was sort of sprinkled around, had like a little European release sure. or whatever. But Campbell's famous line was, this movie wasn't released, it escaped. <laughs> right, right, right. But its U.S. release was the day after my birth. The 25th what? of April, 1986. Just isn't that funny to think one day into my life, Maybe my parents had the New York Times delivered and there was like a little ad for Crime Wave in there or something. And they were like, yeah, that looks bad. Yeah, it is, it is funny. It is funny to imagine one day after your birth, your parents frantically calling anyone they trusted to watch you so they could rush out to theaters to see Crime Wave. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, I mean, he just has, he understands how to use the camera. Like, this yeah. has got to be good, right? Yes. A, a very bizarre film that is largely forgotten in part because the people involved in it have sort of largely disowned it. I feel like Bruce Campbell's the only one who like will still speak on the record about this movie and the three other main creative forces, four if we include Rob Tapper here, 
still seem to be so traumatized by this production that they never even want to acknowledge it. And that's the thing that is wildest about this movie. The thing that for me as a young Sam Raimi fan, I just went like, what are you talking about? How does this exist? And how does no one talk about it? It is impossible that it's as bad as you're saying it is because this is a movie directed by Sam Raimi and written by the Coen brothers. Sounds sounds amazing. Right. In the time between Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 for Raimi and in between Blood Simple and Raising Arizona for the Coens. And you're just like, how could those three guys together in that moment with that momentum do something that is unwatchable? Do you think this movie is unwatchable? I don't. I don't. No. I don't. I think it's I think it's a it's a difficult film to watch. What's hard about it? It is like, I mean, I want to bring our guest in because Yeah, bring uh, our guest in. Bring our guest in. I may him do the quote at the beginning, but uh our guest, first of all, primary credit, a dear friend. Number one credit with a bullet. Top of the resume, dear friend of Griffin Newman. That's the he's best dear, one. He's a dear friend, but he's also a, a fine actor, musician in his own right. And recently, I don't know if you've experienced this, David, but I feel like maybe it was a pandemic thing or maybe it was just that the show has been going on long enough. I feel like in the last 18 months, I've had a number of close friends be like, I finally started listening to your podcast. I Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the, the weird thing of remember those first couple months in the pandemic where the, the take was podcasts are in trouble. No one's commuting. And then suddenly it became actually everyone's kind of catching up on podcasts because they're bored. And uh, and then, yes, I did get a lot of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I've been I've been listening to Blank Check, having a good time. And that's that's nice. So so this dear friend of mine, whenever it was 18 months ago, started texting me about uh, that he was now listening to the show. And that when I told him we were doing Sam Raimi, he said, I'm just going to put out there Bruce Campbell and his work in Sam Raimi movies is pretty much the thing that made me become an actor. If there's anything, any opening you have for me to talk about this. And I asked him about Crime Wave and and your line, Brendan, if I can quote it directly. Yes. I said, have you ever seen Crime Wave? And Brendan, your response was the old Raimi film. Yes. Paid a ridiculous amount of money for the backordered VHS circa 1994 while working at Blockbuster. Yeah, I love that slapsticky mess. I do. I think that's fair. And then your text was, or did you mean another one? (laughs) Our guest today is Brandon Hines. Hi. From a little Amazon series called The Tick. Lock and Key. Yeah. The Middleman, Lie to Me. What what other credits do we want to put in there, Brandon? We don't want to put any other credits in after Dear, after Dear Friend. Okay. Dear Friend's the most important one. Yeah. Uh, as you can see, I was, uh, I, was, I, was, I was waiting for that text from you, for, and I was just ready to jump at the opportunity to mm-hmm. talk about it. I think actually now that I think about it, it was, it was more, it may have actually been closer to 1993. I don't want to lead you astray. Wow. I think it was 1993. Okay. Wow. The, the point here is, it, it sounds like much like what I was talking about. You hear about this movie existing and you go, how is that possible? And how is that not readily watchable? Yeah. Well, I came to a lot of the Raimi stuff the same way you did too, like uh, going to comic book stores. And, you know, I did a play with this guy in high school and he turned me on to a lot of, um, a lot of the stuff that I, uh, first of all, he turned me on to Evil Dead 2 was the first Actually, that's not true. The first Raimi film I saw was Darkman. Well, that's pretty good. 
Yeah. Yeah. In the theater because I was going to this comic book store called Cards, Comics, and Collectibles in Reisterstown, Maryland. Cool. I believe it's still there. And I was <laughs> I was always going in there and was too shy to talk to anybody, but I would just go in and kind of soak up the vibe. And they had a poster for Darkman, and I thought, that's the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I still think that. And uh, got my parents to allow me to go see this film. And it was the, it, that was the first Raimi film I ever saw. And I, and I knew that it was made by someone great and, and made in a way that was unique for those sorts of movies. Yeah, that's a movie where, like, if you see that poster as a kid, you go, oh, this looks cool. And if you watch that movie, you go, why is this different from other movies? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And it was one of the first things where I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to have a directorial stamp on something or an off like an authorial take on something. I didn't I wasn't thinking in terms of the word auteur, but like that is what I was thinking. Uh, that is what I was finally becoming uh, hip to at that point. And then this guy I did a play with introduced me to Evil Dead 2, which was the greatest movie I'd ever seen at that <laughs> point in my life. And it just spoke to where I was at that time in my life and all the things that I thought were hilarious and the things that I, you know, and the gore felt, you know, transgressive, but also funny. And then I was working at Blockbuster. I was assistant manager. Also cool. Blockbuster Video, Owings Mills. This is Brendan speaking. Can I help mm -hmm. you? Yep. And I had access to this massive you know, Bible, this, this, this VHS Bible that we had, uh, at Blockbuster, no IMDB or anything at this point. So I would just go through it looking for actors that I loved. And at that point, Bruce Campbell was, you know, top of the list. And I saw Crime Wave and I cross-referenced it, realized that it was directed by Sam Raimi. And just like you're saying, I was, I couldn't believe that no one had brought that up. Yeah. Everyone talks about Evil Dead 2 and Evil Dead and even Darkman, but no one had ever mentioned Crime Wave. So I go onto the computer the, the database at Blockbuster, not available, of course. <laughs> right. But, you know, back then you could like, th there was always like a copy that, that was just available if you wanted to back order it for like, you know, 90, 90 bucks, 100 bucks. It felt like more money than even existed in the world at that point. And anyway, I ordered it through, uh, through the offices of Blockbuster Video, and paid for it myself. That's how that's how intent you were on seeing Crime Wave. Yeah, I mean, I was just such a I was uh, yeah I was an obsessive. You know, I also like it reminded me thinking about watching Crime Wave and then just thinking about talking about it. I was reminded I went so deep down. I went into all of like the Raimi um, collaborators. The Becker, Josh Becker, mm -hmm. who did this thing called Lunatics, a love story with Ted Raimi and because Bruce Campbell's in that and this thing called Sundown, the Vampire in Retreat. I don't know if you've seen this movie. No, it was, it was directed by Anthony Hickox, who did the Waxwork movies, Holy which shit. Campbell is also <laughs> in. I'm looking. Sorry. I mean, Lunatics, a love story. I'm seeing Ted Raimi is the star, the He's star, a tinfoil suit on the poster. Yeah. Okay, this is cool. It's similar to Crime Wave in the sort of like, you know, like nebbishy, dorky guy um, trying to get the, the girl. 
mm-hmm. that right. old chestnut. But Sundown was the one where I was just like, oh, God, nobody knows about this movie. And it's got all the coolest people in the world in it. I mean, Carradine is in it. David Carradine is in it. And Bruce Campbell plays Van Helsing. Oh, here it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn. These, wow. these video covers are really fun. I, I had them say. all on my shelf. And I watched them repeatedly. M. Emmett Walsh playing a character called Mort Bisbee. That's pretty good. That's when I started to really like make those connections, you know, between, you know, the the cinematic universe of Raimi and the Coens, you know, overlapping so much, you know, um, with the people they used and the character names. And, you know, this movie starts off at the Hudsucker prison and you just start to see that. And then over the years, when then you're getting into you being me is getting into the Coen (laughs) brothers. Uh, and I, and I'm picking up on all of these references that I don't think anybody else is noticing. So it makes me feel very special, but also makes me feel very protective of these things. I wasn't one of the ones who wanted to share them with everybody. I wanted to like, keep them. Did you ever see, I just love this title. Thou shalt not kill dot, 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 except yes. Yes. Uh, which is another Josh Becker written with Bruce Campbell and Scott Spiegel, of course, who wrote evil dead Two. And, in, and starring Sam and Ted Raimi as Sam Raimi plays a cult leader in this movie. Yeah, that one I could not find a copy of. Well, according to Wikipedia, some of the fans of the film hail it as one of the great works in American filmography. Wow. <laughs> no, not, no, nothing cited there. for Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's crazy. This... What you're describing, too, when you say, like, oh, I didn't really want to share it. But, right, let's, like, before the internet, it's just some person at a video store being, like, hey, check this out, right? Like, you know, that's the only, here, I'm going to make this picture of Sam Raimi as a Charles Manson figure, my background once. But it was, right, it was that thing where, like, record stores, video stores, and comic book stores had to function as an analog version of the internet, right? Where you heard about things from people where people downloaded trivia into your brain and where you could maybe exchange or acquire these things. That is a look. We're looking at Sam <laughs> Raimi in Thou Shalt Not Kill. This is the except. top trivia. Except, except, sorry. I, I was just taking a long pause. <laughs> the, t- the top trivia fact on Thou Shalt Not Kill, except, is the movie was mostly shot in the garage and on the lawn of the house where Bruce Campbell grew up. You gotta go back home. And that's the other thing I used to do, like we, my friends and I, when, if we had a snow day, I mean, everyone did this, but we would, you know, make these camcorder films and I would replicate entire sequences from Sam Raimi films with the camcorder uh, and with like one or two friends. I mean, the only friends I had guys, one or two. I also, I don't, I don't want to embarrass you, Brandon, but I feel like I just need to state this up front because this is an audio medium. Okay. You're an incredibly handsome, tall, well-built, and charming man. <laughs> wow. And when you just put it out there. I, you hate it when people say this. But, but when you were telling me how like, important and impactful Campbell and the Raimi films were for you growing up, I was like, that makes a ton of sense. And even when I said to David, David went like, oh, that makes a ton of sense. Because you do just sort of have that Bruce Campbell spirit where it's like, you genuinely are just such a dork for these things, despite the fact that perhaps from outside perception, 
you do not seem like the person who would be that kind of a dork for these things. And you're just very like passionate and collaborative and knowledgeable about all of this. I like on the tick, you played a very Bruce Campbell y part. Mm -hmm. And you seem to really relish that. And and when I hear you tell me about frustrations you have in your acting career, they are often you getting handed sort of like generic dude roles. Yeah. When when people want you to play like the nice guy version of the thing rather than the smug asshole version of the thing. Yeah, or the thing with any sense of, or with the thing that has any unique spin on it whatsoever, you know? Right. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be smug, but just something other than, you know, nice and uh, well lit. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. I, I feel that thing shared between you and Bruce Campbell of just the like, I want to use the body I'm in in a subversive way mm -hmm. rather than just get plugged into a frame. I always found when I was watching, because I would, you know, as it, I would watch any film if I knew Bruce Campbell had even the smallest part. I, I mean, it's fair to say I had a massive crush on the guy. And I would get annoyed when they cast him as just the generic good looking guy who mm -hmm. just shows up for like five lines and then walks away, you know, who di and they didn't let him. You could see also when they're when they're telling him to turn it down, when they're telling right. him to bury that natural thing he has not just the cockiness not just the humor but just the i mean like he's just he's a he's a collaborator and he could bring so much to anything i think absolutely it's not to front load here but it's one of the wildest things like digging into the history of this movie was they wrote this as a vehicle for him they wanted yeah. him to play the reed bernie part they made him screen test because for the first time they're working with like other producers and financers and we'll dig into the deeper version mm -hmm, of all mm -hmm. this but um, all the money people said, like, Bruce Campbell cannot be the lead of this movie. They take the role of Ronaldo the heel, which was smaller, and expand it so that his character runs throughout the entire length of the movie, specifically so that not only he could have a big enough role in the film, but also they were like, we need to convince them to pay Bruce to be here for run of production mm -hmm. because they did not understand, like, he is the third collaborator. Right. He's he's alchemical here right right yes. but also he's gonna produce shit he's gonna shoot second unit he's gonna be like talent coordinator yes. he's gonna do he's all editing, this fucking he's shit. editing on the fly too i think right and they wouldn't pay to let him work or stay there during post-production they were like the movie's done he's an actor he's wrapped you don't need him anymore and it was right. like a big fight it's weird that they did not gravitate to bruce campbell who is handsome and charming and i do not say that to, and I, I mean, no offense to Reed Bernie, who obviously has gone on to have a great career and gave one of the most moving theater performances I ever saw in Circle Mirror Transformation. And obviously he was, you know, he's a he's a working actor. He's doing great. But but why did they then like bring in this basically unknown guy and go like, well, this is the guy like that's what I don't really understand. I, I feel I feel the same way. I'm, I'm always surprised when I read that they they, they didn't want Campbell. Uh, maybe they just found maybe he he couldn't be the loser. Maybe they felt like he couldn't be the loser. I, it's it's insane. Creatively, that's the only version of that decision that makes sense to me. But there is the thing Connor Ratliff, friend of the show and his Dead Eyes podcast often talks about when he's talking to people about like theories on why he got fired from Band of Brothers that that part of it was like casting made this decision without Tom Hanks, the director of the episode. And when the director comes in, maybe they want to exert their control. 
Right. Or they think there's something wrong. Right. right. And they're like, well, this can be the fix or what. I don't know. But not even that, David. I mean, that's that's a fair enough thing. But I also think sometimes when people get involved at that kind of level and they're like, I need to think that I'm more valuable than just being the person who writes the check. I have to put my foot down somewhere or something. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And yeah, on yeah, paper, yeah. you go, if this guy is saying, look, here's my friend who I made home movies with in our backyards and he's my leading man. You go like red alert, red alert, red alert, have to hire a real actor. But then if you make this guy do a screen test and he's Bruce Campbell and he looks like this and he's this good and this funny, I cannot imagine him going like, well, this guy's unusable. He is fundamentally not a leading man. I think you're right. And they also it's the it's the control thing too. Reed Bernie, they can pluck out of, I assume, obscurity at this yes. point. And he will be theater. so grateful. Theater, yeah. right? A, a, a well, probably first respected big theater actor. Leading, yes. yeah, for sure. But leading role in a in a in a big budget film. They and then he will be just grateful, and he'll he'll do the job. He'll be a jobber. But Campbell will be collaborating with, and as the producers will be seeing it, conspiring with right. Ramy. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean that 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 makes a lot of sense. That you don't want the whatever the chickens running the hen house or what right i don't know you know i don't, I don't know yeah yeah i mean especially because it's just like evil dead is such an amazing calling card movie you're in this catch-22 where like if you're the people writing the checks for this movie you go holy shit these guys did what on what budget they pulled that off that's impressive they know what they're doing but simultaneously you're probably scared where you're like they did that all on their own there was no oversight I'm not going to be able to control them at all. If you let all three of them retain their key creative positions, then we're not going to be able to get a word in edgewise versus if you force a different leading man in there, how much can we sort of like elbow out Bruce Campbell? Well, we'll talk about the strange production of this film in a sec, mm -hmm. but uh, I do just want to get on the record. Ben Hosley, our producer's opinion of this film. Um, 10 stars because <laughs> <laughs> when i was watching it i did have the it did occur to me i was like i think ben will will appreciate the energy of this film if nothing else and uh, i log on this morning or log on this afternoon and ben uh ben ben proved me right i give it 10 bonks for <laughs> like clanks and a couple of uh <laughs> for good measures. <laughs> a couple hands, <laughs> right? That that makes sense. Yes. It's just it's about crime. Uh as as you pointed out, Griffin, there's a wave. Ben loves there's water. There's a wave. Ben loves water. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, it's just a, a big old loony tune of a movie. Whether, oh, yeah. you know, whether or not Sam Raimi was happy with the end result, it's uh it's just jumping from here to there, like, you know, do 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 you know, the whole time. Like it, ne it never lets up. Yeah, see, David, I mean, you you recently logged us on Letterboxd as two and a half stars, and your review was not the most coherent movie I've ever seen. Not not the most. <laughs> now, I agree with that, but I probably give it three stars. Yeah, maybe I'm being a little rude. It's not the most incoherent movie I've ever seen. It's not. It's not. No. It's absolutely <laughs> not. And I have but to I say... But I wouldn't say it's in the middle of, of incoherence <laughs> no, and coherence. No, no, I agree with you, but but it is just like... <laughs> It, I, I am fascinated. It's hard to even imagine what the sort of uh, undisturbed version of this movie would look like, right? Like you read about 
there were multiple steps to this. The production itself was like a nightmare. Reading the anecdotes about the production of this movie, which we will get into, I'm like, this sounds as intense as like the Hurt Locker, like the most extreme apocalypse now, like the most chaotic shoots of all time. Right. Like they're in the jungle somewhere, except they're not. They're like in Detroit or whatever. Right. You're like, how did this go this wrong? But then, you know, control is wrestled away during post-production. They force reshoots, edits. They make him hire a new uh, um, composer, all these sorts of things. But it, 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 Raimi makes his movies so deliberately that it's not like you can easily recut them and take the Raimi DNA out of them. Right. So you don't watch this movie. It doesn't feel like other movies we've covered before that were sort of pulled away from directors where you're like, I, it's just lost in here. I don't know what it is. And the energy of this thing is just so fucking infectious. I am now just looking at my letterbox review, uh, which you reminded me of. And the comments Mike, are very indicative, I guess, of how polarizing crime wave is. Like, it's wacky, but not in a fun way. I think it's wacky in a fun way. <laughs> Couldn't finish it. David, please reconsider. 1.5 stars too many, King, or really two stars too little. It's not good, and I hope the writers never work again. I think that's a joke about the Coen brothers. Yeah. Uh, it's extremely bad. I was kind of blown away by this movie. You know, just... just uh, Love and hate uh, yes. doing battle. This movie provokes a reaction, that, that, if nothing else. I feel that within me, I feel those two sides uh, at, at, at war within me. Of the, you know, when I watched this movie, I was reminded when I was, when, of how I felt when I watched it as a kid because there's so much of it that I loved. So many like, shots that work, so many, so many set pieces that are, you know, just oversized shouldn't work and yet kind of do like even when she's dangling out the window and the flower pot is falling and then the you know he catches the pot and then the soil comes out like little bits like that which are very coen brothersy too that's you know for me the big thing that i hated when i was watching this as a kid was the jokes that don't work mm. you know the 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 big broad slapsticky three stooges stuff that that doesn't work that's I get mad at that because this <laughs> yeah. movie could have been fucking perfect. Yeah, this movie could have been perfect. And for me, the biggest thing, I think, if I think this movie for you, David, goes from a two and a half. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna presume to speak for you. No, for, speak me, for me, this movie would go to a to a five star five boinks on the head. Yeah. If mm. if wow. you, if Huge. you if you take that the fucking ADR of What's his name? Crush? What's uh Yeah, what's... the Paul L. Smith character. The Paul right? L. Smith. Yeah. If you if right. you if you take that ADR out with whoever there's a wrestler or something that they Yes. Uh, that they yeah, use. the ADR is tough. It's 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 not the most seamless. <laughs> yeah. It's egregious too. Like it's in all these places where they clearly are just like adding it in post, where he's adding, like, wow, oh, what do you think you're doing here and there? And oh, I'll show you here and there. It's like, okay, guys, just let it breathe for one second. And that is where you start to, that's where I think I can see the, the handprints of the studio and these producers, you know, just trying to fill every single fucking hole. Well, and was the whole wraparound a, a mandated reshoot, the, the electric chair? I was reading they made them reshoot bookends. Oh, I don't know. Because the movie was incomprehensible to people. Or at least they thought it was. That makes sense. I mean, it is pretty... Um, incomprehensible yeah yes. people and it's pretty expository with those bookends but but i agree with you brendan that at moments i'm watching this movie and thinking wait is this my favorite movie of all time 
is this the most perfect movie I've ever seen? And then the next scene will happen and I'll like drift a little bit, right? Right. It's sort of weird how you can zone out watching a very, very manic movie. Because, right, yes. sometimes you're like, I, this is such a cleverly executed sequence. This is so visually interesting. And then other times you're kind of like, what, what's, I, I, I lost it. What's going on? What, 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 where are we? Like, who is this? And all three Evil Dead movies are movies where things just stack on top of each other in this way, right? Where it's like, instead of taking an hour for the crazy shit to happen and it happens for 20 minutes and then there's a resolution, it's like, what if the shit happens for 70 out of 85 minutes? But those movies have the benefit of being kind of focused in the stories they're telling. Mm -hmm. Army of Darkness, I guess, a little bit less so. And then I, I think... Because this and Hudsucker are sort of written around the same time. They're written in concert with each other. And it's only when the Coens are coming off of Barton Fink and have that success that they're able to get Hudsucker made. So who knows what work is done further on the script between then and now and probably a lot of work done from the lessons they learned on working Crime Wave. But like Hudsucker, which I love and I think is a masterpiece, is a movie where they figure out the emotional spine of the thing. And it's weird because when that movie came out, all the reviews are like, the Coen brothers are so cynical. They think all these characters are fucking idiots. The movie's so mean-spirited. And I think that movie is like incredibly sincere and earnest. And I think they have a lot of love for this big like galoof at the center. Whereas this movie, you kind of feel like all three of them are like, what if we make a movie where everyone's an idiot? And that's funny. Like, it is funny. But I do think they realized a decade later, like, it helps if you have a couple characters at the center that you can actually kind of care about. Yeah, you want to root for something, I guess, or to, if you're going to make a real movie. And Crime Wave feels like like something that escaped from a film canister, like to, 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 to paraphrase Bruce Campbell, right? Like, it's like, so, you know, some guy was delivering a bunch of movies to a theater, and then there's one, like, case that's, like, sort of, clattering around and the guy's like what's that one and he's like oh no you 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 wouldn't want to deal with that one no 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 no. I, I i was just hauling that off to the dump and the guy's like oh no come on and he knocks it over and then the film escapes you know I'm black smoke seeps out right. yeah. Yeah, yeah okay let me give you some context about crime wave yeah sam Raimi makes the evil dead famously long torturous shoot no money back in tennessee he goes to michigan uh and then he goes to new york looking for post-production and Edna Paul edits that movie, and she's got a, a young assistant named Joel Cohn. And Joel is watching Evil Dead get assembled, and he's like, "This guy is talented. Like that's that's you know they've got the and they, these two Midwestern boys bond over this, right?" Joel Joel sort of immediately recognizes like this is real shit. Like he's watching this footage, he bonds with them. He and and. She says to Raimi, you should read the scripts that the Coen brothers write. And Raimi's like, there's two of them? They're like, yeah, the second <laughs> one works as a statistical accountant at Macy's. Yep. And Raimi's reaction is like, look, I think Joel's a nice guy. I'm not going to read these fucking scripts. That sounds like a disaster. Right. He's, he's like, oh, God, this is going to be embarrassing. And then he reads, I think, Blood Simple. Yeah, correct. Which I think is what they had written with the thinking of like that'll be our calling card movie it's small right you know like and he's like oh shit this is you know these guys know how to write scripts that's the quote he's like this is like a hitchcock level script like this is an it's actual a good script. perfect screenplay yeah 
Uh, there's not much detail that JJ could find about the writing of Crime Wave because, because they hate talking about it. Yeah. They don't want to talk about it. Uh, it is obviously they're working on Hudsucker at the same time, at least some early version of Hudsucker. And obviously they use the word Hudsucker in Crime Wave, right? Like it's sort of, you know, it's on their minds. And it was called uh, Relentless. Then it was called the XYZ Murders. No one could ever come up, come up with a good title for this movie. Crime Wave is not a good title, but it's fine. Like, it, it's, yeah. It's kind of the best of the options they had. I agree, and yet it was forced on them, right? Yeah. XYZ Murders, I read it was that one of the producers said, you'll have an easier time selling this movie if there's an X or murder in the title. Like, that always <laughs> tracks really well. And they were like, we can put both in the title. So they get money from Embassy Pictures. Classic sort of low budget you know they did scanners they did escape from new york they did the fog you know uh they give him they give him a little money basically off the back of evil dead and norman lear wait norman lear yeah this is what's wild david so robert i think he's Reamy, the one who suggested crime wave as the title right shit Ro- Ro- robert Remy was the head of avco embassy he sells it to norman lear he goes to take over he becomes the head of production at universal i think and is the guy who like green lights et and shit um and norman lear buys avco embassy for 20 million dollars chops the avco off the top of the name his two big things are kind of getting rob reiner's career off the ground in that he supports uh this is spinal tap and uh princess bride and then within four years the company is sold to coca-cola and folded into bigger sony so there's this four-year run where Norman Lear's in charge. He makes two, like, totemic Rob Reiner movies. And this is one of the weird other experiments in that time. This is also why Louise Lasser is in it, I think, because yes. of Norman Lear, because he produced right. uh, Mary Hartman. Mary Hartman. Right. Uh, Broken Hearts and Noses, that's another suggested title. Terrible title. Uh, Crime Wave is finally decided upon. And obviously, as we said, Bruce Campbell um, was it was intended to be the star, and Embassy Pictures would not bite. Mm-hmm. Reed Bernie, he's good. I like Reed Bernie. Uh, yeah, Are we pro Reed Bernie. He, he makes sense this. for this movie. Yeah, yeah, I I always like him, and he is good in this. And you do wonder if Bruce is a little too cool to play the guy. I mean, I obviously think he would have done it well, but Reed Bernie is like so squirrely in this. Uh, and Bruce, you would have had the added level in a movie that's already really manic of a guy with matinee idol looks pretending to play a nerd. Right. I will tell you that Cherie J. Wilson, who plays um, Nancy in this movie, uh, this is her first movie. She'd actually been cut out of Tootsie. But my thing that I like is when she was cast, uh, she told Sam Raimi, I don't really like horror movies. I haven't seen your horror movie. And he was like, don't watch it. Uh, it's going to freak you out. I don't want you to dislike me, basically. You'll quit the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want you to think less of me. Uh, and uh, she, wow, she went on to do 200 episodes, basically, of Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah, Did and Dallas this? as well. She was on yes. Dallas as well, right? But like, that's, yeah, damn, she was, she was a lead on Walker, Texas Ranger. That's, you know, it's money in the bank. That, that's, that's money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Louise Lasser obviously specifically wanted to work with Sam Raimi. She loved Evil Dead. She had worked with Lear on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And she is great in this movie, I think. She is so much fun. 
don't know. What do you guys think? She is she have have you guys seen this movie Blood Rage? No. I don't think so. There's a movie that she did, I think around this time, maybe a couple of years earlier, about a pair of twins, one of whom is a serial killer and the other is not. And uh she's the mom. And it's basically the same performance. She looks exactly the same. Her makeup is the same. Her wardrobe is the same. And she has a ton of scenes just to herself on the phone. I, I highly recommend people watch Blood Rage because it's a really good slasher film, but also it has these long scenes of Louise Lasser just calling the cops. And I swear these scenes are like eight minutes long with her on the phone um, having a meltdown. There's no cutaway. And it's just, it's crazy. It's batshit crazy stuff. And I don't know what, apparently she was, apparently she had some addiction issues, according to Bruce Campbell. She, she, she's had a long, wild life, Louise Lasser. And, and a lot of the thing with her, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman was a Norman Lear doing a satire of soap operas that ran right. at the same schedule as soap operas. So it was 325 episodes. They did five episodes a week. It was this incredibly ambitious thing. And it was sort of an American housewife having like a mental breakdown in the style of a soap opera. And then she hosted SNL. Right. Very famous SNL story. Right. Right. And her monologue was her having like a Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman-esque breakdown. Right. And the cast having to coax her out of the dressing room and whatever. And there are all these questions as to whether like, because she was apparently like the first person banned from coming back to the show. Right. Supposedly it was like, it's a bit, but also they were like, but she was actually that difficult. Right. And Michael O'Donohue, a famously chill person, called her clinically berserk. Right. uh, And whatever. But then she later said, like, Chevy Chase sucked, which also seems true. Look, the whole thing is everyone was doing four billion pounds of cocaine a second. And they were all probably the most insufferable people in the world. As much as every, as much as every SNL oral history is like, man, we were inventing comedy. It was the comedy lab back there. And I'm like, you guys were all just out of your minds. Is what Absolutely. Was no, I, I think just, I mean, because even to the blood rage point, like Louise Lasser is fascinating because she was someone who was so good at playing women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And then some of the people who work with her, like she was impossible. She was on the verge of a nervous breakdown the entire time. Yeah. And they just have to point the camera at her and they get right. that. And then they turn it off and she's still that. But but like an incredibly effective performer. Oh, great. Yeah. She's great. I mean, the scene with the, you know, when she's running down the hallway, the doors, you know, in Crime Wave. Yeah. Like, yes. Am I skipping ahead? No, that, no that's, that's kind of the most perverse sequence of the movie. You can skip ahead in <laughs> Crime Wave. <laughs> it's, there's not like a narrative thread that we're picking up and dropping. Right, right. That's true. Uh, so the doors, uh, the, the door ballet. Like, I don't know who else commits as heavily to that as Louise Lasser. Or really the whole thing in the apartment when Crush is chasing her around. Um, Apparently, according to Bruce Campbell, she applied her own makeup. This is the whole thing, right? She fired her makeup person and said she didn't know what she was doing. I know how to do my own makeup and showed up with like a version of what we see in this movie, but 40% more extreme. And part of their job every day was to like let her do her own makeup and then take it down. But I think the amount of like eyeshadow and lipstick and rouge on her face was not part of Raimi's design. That was a compromise. But if you see Blood Rage, you'll see that it's the same 
thing. Hmm. Yes. She, it's, and in fact, I don't think anyone took it down the 40%. I think they, uh, they just, they, really, they, yeah, they, they added more. Obviously she's a real name at this point. So I get that. She's the biggest you, name they have. Right. You would, you would yeah. tolerate more uh, unusual behavior from her, but it is again, funny where they're like, we're not putting up with this Bruce Campbell who does lots of work. And helps out on the set. You can't cast him. We we see through your lies. Anyway, here's Louise Lasser. Don't talk to her. <laughs> don't, don't, like don't, don't don't look her in the eyes. Like, right. You know. Bruce Campbell's like carrying around apple boxes, and they're yeah. like this fucking guy trying to disrupt our production. <laughs> Can I get you a cup of coffee? Get the fuck out of here, asshole! Fucking asshole! You <laughs> bottleneck. Uh, there's this Louise Lasser li- quote here that's very nice. I mean, you were sort of alluding to this, David. But she said, the appeal to me was not in the role. The appeal was that it was so clear to me that it was a director's picture. I was right. willing to put myself in his hands. I like to be around people like that. And then seemed to only be a hassle and a nightmare for them after that. But you're talking about how hard she committed to like that doorway sequence, which is the type of Raimi thing that must be so impossibly complicated to shoot that it is so wearing on an actor. And to her credit, she does fucking go for it so goddamn hard. Yes, she does, which is good, which is right. Exactly. Like that is the, the upside. You're, you're getting someone who has genuine chaotic energy on screen. And that that works for this film very, very well. Brian James, uh, another who plays Arthur, uh, another erratic person. Bruce Campbell said that he tore his hotel room to shreds uh, and said that Sick. the ghost of his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend was in the light fixtures. I love this story so much. It's, so it's not even a story. I love that sentence so much. It's I don't crazy. know anything beyond it. But the implication... Ghost of my girlfriend's ex-boyfriend was in the I love the implication picture. is that maybe he killed his uh, girlfriend's ex-boyfriend? Right. This is... Okay, there's two... Like, is it one, right, he's haunted by something? Or two, is he having sex with his girlfriend in his hotel room and maybe a light turns on or off and he's like, it's your ex-boyfriend! Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm throwing this lamp out the window. That That's what I view. I view it almost as like he's afraid of the competition, that it's not like I murdered this guy and now he's coming back for me. It's like, fuck, if he's back in ghost form, I might not stand a chance. Well, I tell you, I guess maybe the reason I I, I, I felt it was the uh, former was because of um, it's Brian James. Oh, sure, sure. Sure. The guy who yes. like haunted me as a kid every time I would look at a VHS uh, 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 tape cover in the video store that had him on it, I would just be like, no, I'm not going anywhere near that movie. Right. He's 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 a guy you hire for just immediate physical intensity. I think a lot of people probably know him best from Blade Runner, right? Uh huh. Forty eight uh, hours. Great in forty eight hours. Great in um the fifth element. Great, Flesh in, and great blood. in a lot of stuff. Red yeah. Heat. Yeah. Didn't wasn't he in Shocker, the guy who gets electrocuted but then comes back to life? Is that a Wes Craven film? That is a Wes Craven film. It's not Brian James, though. Who oh. is it? He's Who in played... Future Shock? Yeah, it's something about shock electricity. I'm getting confused. Yeah, it's it's Michael Murphy who's in shock. Right. But Michael Murphy, he's not right. Mitch Pileggi is the is the man who has been. Oh, he shocked. is the he is the shocky. Yeah. Right. Michael Murphy is like the cop or whatever. Yeah. Uh he was in Cabin Boy. I mean, he had a very, very odd career and was a very intense, frightening man. And then, and then Paul L. Smith, there's like, I, I'm not seeing specifics on it. And I dug a little deeper, but they said like part of why they redubbed all of his dialogue was because he was, quote, not the most collaborative, that they had a very hard time getting stuff out of him. 
Paul L. Smith, at this point, is probably best known for playing Bluto in Popeye, which is incredibly funny because the style of the dubbing in this movie feels like something out of a Popeye cartoon. A hundred percent. He can only be dubbed. Right, where Bluto would just, like, have his teeth gritted at all times in the old cartoons, his lips would never move, and then words would just come out. That felt very disconnected from his body. I'll bet he wouldn't do the cartoon voices. Brian James commits to the cartoon voice. Yes. And I bet Raimi, this is just conjecture, but I bet Raimi wanted him to do a similarly goofy voice, and he wouldn't do it. He did a tough guy voice or whatever. guy. Right, Yeah. yeah. But then they dubbed him with a tough guy voice, so maybe I'm crazy. But they dubbed him with a tough guy doing a cartoon voice. Like, when I heard his voice, I was like, who did they get to do this? Was it like, you know, was this an early Tom Kenny job? Was this like, you imagine they got a cartoon guy to do the voiceover, and they're like, no, they hired a professional wrestler to do a silly voice. Francis McDormand plays a silent nun in this movie, along with Bridget Hoffman. And uh, let's, yeah, that's about it. Is there, you know... uh, the Cohen brothers are the photographers in the execution. Yes, uh, the execution, the execution room, yes. I think it's called. Yes, yes. Um, Ted Raimi pops up, obviously. Paul L. Smith, it is funny. He's one of those guys where you're like, well, of course he played Bluto. They probably saw him on the street and they were like, here he is, Bluto in real life. Uh, he's also Beast Raban in Dune. He's actually really good in, in, in David Lynch's Dune. But but the other thing with him, do you know this wild thing about his... I'm I'm pulling this up because I want to get the specifics. Right. So it was uh, Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer were like the big Italian comedy duo in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Terrence Hill from um, Superfuzz. Yes. And there was and a guy named Antonio Cantafora who went by Michael Kobe, who was a Terrence Hill lookalike. And he cast Paul L. Smith, who is from Massachusetts, to be like his burly cohort. And they essentially did like rip off buddy movies, trying to trick the audience into thinking they were seeing uh, Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer movies. Uh Like he built this odd career in the 70s, like at, you know, sort of running concurrent with like the end of the spaghetti Western shit, where he did like 10 Italian buddy comedies. And then Midnight Express, and then he becomes Bluto, the in-laws. Like, then he becomes an American comedy guy, weirdly. That's interesting because Super Fuzz is how I know Terrence Hill. And this movie has real Super Fuzz vibes. Um, If you've ever seen it, it starts with a guy in an electric chair. Um, But if that's the case, it's funny because, why, why am I saying this? Oh. Ernest Borgnine is the um, is the is the second banana in Superfuss, who he could also have been, you know, doubling for at some point. Ernest Borgnine would fit right in in Crime Wave, by right. the way. Oh, yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. There was some burly bearded Italian guy who Paul L. Smith became the poor man's option of for like eight years with misleading posters that would make people think they were seeing that guy's movie. <laughs> so, a uh, production starts in 1983. Uh, Halloween 1983 ends in January 1984. They shot it in Detroit. Sam Raimi thought, like, this is perfect. You know, it's got kind of an out-of-time feel. You can, you know, shoot in these, like, old Motor City, you know, vintage hotels, right? Like, that have Mm kind of, like, a throwback-y, crimey feel, I guess, right? (laughs) You know, just the kind of place where you'd imagine, like, a bellhop is getting a drink and then a mobster shows up or whatever, you know, all that shit. Um, and 
what I guess everyone just says this movie was an absolute nightmare to make. It's partly that they shot it all at nights, obviously. And I think yes. it was freezing cold. Like Detroit in the winter is not exactly like summery. Um, but I don't know. Like, it just seems like as much as the evil dead was also a nightmare to make everyone on the evil dead was like in the club, right? Like everyone's like, we're doing this together. It's collaborative blood, sweat and tears. Right. And then this seems like Sam Raimi being confronted with a real movie set and it, you know, having to adjust to all that weird ego stuff. Well, there is, there's a, a sense in the, the notes that JJ put together of like, he got them to approve a budget of $2.5 million. But the thing that he didn't factor in when he budgeted it was like union costs and like five other things that he had skirted on The Evil Dead because he was making a small movie with his friends and all the money just went on screen. Uh, so immediately they realized like, we have not given ourselves the budget necessary for this film. Everything immediately costs like 30% more than they thought it would. And then on top of that, Raimi could not rein in his ambition. So when things were difficult and they were running over a schedule, he refused to compromise and simplify his ideas. This is unattributed from the IMDb trivia, which is notoriously uh, trustworthy. But I just want to read this because this feels like there are a lot of anecdotes like this about the making of the film. Uh, the crew spent a week filming on a Detroit street after dark directly under a nursing home with huge wind machines blowing for long hours. One evening, a glass bottle with a note in it crashed to the ground from an upper floor. The note inside read, the noise is keeping me awake all night long and I'm getting sick. I am dying because of you. <laughs> oh, no. Damn. Every story feels like that, where they're like, they want to film this thing in the water, but the water had frozen over with ice, so they're using dynamite to blow up the water. Yes, they had to blow up the water. And you're I've like, how is that a story about the making of the movie and not a thing that happens in the movie? That's sick. Who? Yeah, also, <laughs> like, what's that conversation where it's like, fuck, what do we do? It's frozen over. And one guy's like, I'll call my dynamite guy. Yeah, like, is that a thing? Sticks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, let's see. Um, wait, yeah, the cinematographer is Robert Primes, who had just worked with Francis Ford Coppola on Rumblefish, but he was like second unit on that, so sure. whatever. Uh, but he and Raimi seem to vibe, but I guess Raimi would make demands such as, I want to zoom into this guy's mouth and see a tongue and two teeth, and then the actor will say the line. And yeah. Primes would be like, what are you talking about? How the fuck am I supposed to do that? You know what I mean? It's like that Sam Raimi thing of like, he he knows what he wants in his head. And then he's, you know, trying to explain it to crew members. And they're like, I've never done anything like that before. Like, which God bless him. Like, you know, it, it's good. Like, I love that Sam Raimi does this shit, but it, it, it must have been crazy. There's this prime quote. I like here Prime's quote. Uh, he, he said, I couldn't understand. Why would you do this? Why would you zoom into somebody's mouth? I'm a little older now, and I understand it's incredibly entertaining. It's an exaggeration. It's a different style. It doesn't have to allude to the classical tradition of filmmakers. It's his worldview. He also said, like, Sam would read the script and he'd go, and was like acting it out. The big impression I got was a comic book. It didn't deal with the subtleties of human consciousness. It didn't deal with indecision and gray tones. It was almost like, this was a bad guy, and he's really, really bad. It almost seemed like caricatures of two-dimensional people. Caricatures of two-dimensional people is a really good way to describe the energy of this movie. 
Right. He takes uh, something like a one one line description of a character, and he's like, "But let's strip that down. Like, let's yeah. like, like right, right, right." And right. also, That's and also at the same time, amp that up. You know, Sam Raimi. He's ambitious. He works really, really hard. A lot of people say it was a little exhausting. He was maybe moving too slowly for the studio's comfort. He was maybe not going to hit his budget target or whatever. I am, you know, like it's one of those things where when you hear about it, I'm like, I imagine making this movie, I would be pissed off. And then, of course, this happens with movies where you read these stories and you're like, yeah, but the final product, holy shit. Like, you know, you read about freaking Mad Max Fury Road and you're like, but it it ended up being worth it, right? Like that's something to be proud of for the rest of your life. Yes. And then instead when it's Crime Wave, and no one sees it, and it becomes like the forgotten Sam Raimi movie, I'm sure that's frustrating. Yeah, when it was that difficult to make, and it was sort of taken away from you, and most people dislike it. I, It's like, the Coens, I feel like, just don't talk about a period, and Raimi, whenever he's asked about it, will offer like a one-sentence quote, which is just like, just a miserable, miserable episode of my life. We'll just like say one thing like that. Part of me thinks that that's because for the Ray, for the Cohen brothers in particular, that they are, it's so clearly like the nascent stage of their bag of tricks, mm. and not that they it's a limited bag, but it's it's so clearly in the formative stages, and I think that's embarrassing for them, and they don't you know because there's like this movie feels like Fargo, this movie feels like Hudsucker Proxy, even a little No Country for Old Men, it does right, so they they don't want people to go back and see how like unformed they were at that at that point um same with Raimi probably too but for you know all the other reasons but he's also making this after evil dead it's like you've nailed this kind of once already you know not with this budget I mean the money like you're talking like you're saying the budget of this movie kind of ruined it he doomed it I would say absolutely and that's why like they had all control wrestled from them because it was like this movie's a mess and the money people are on set and they're going like, Sam, we've watched you do 30 takes of this thing with the fan. Why aren't you moving on? It's freezing. It's four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And he'd be like, I don't have it yet. And there was just like, he just speaks very purely about like, I have a lot of respect for this. I treat my crew with respect, but we're like paying respect to the tradition of this thing and we have to get it right. And I know what it is in my mind's eye. Can I read this? Um, Prime's quote here about the car. Did you see this one, David? Yeah, that was the quote we should read, I think. Yes, this is this is the best summation of what it's like to work with young Sam Raimi. Yes. So Prime's Robert Prime's the DP says, my little joke I used to make about this is that to Sam Raimi, when the script says the car pulls off the road, that actually means that the car is in the right-hand lane of a busy freeway when suddenly the driver jerks the wheel left, goes into traffic, causing cars to spin out and tractor trailers to jackknife. The car then jumps the divider, turning into oncoming traffic, which swerves around, and then the car pulls off the road six lanes over on the other side. That's what the car pulls off the road means to Sam Raimi. And he never, would you agree, Griffin? He never loses that, except, I mean, we'll talk about it in a while. Like, a simple plan is kind of famous for the studio basically had someone on set being like, make sure he doesn't fucking move the camera like a crazy person like, <laughs> right like but it like takes that long for and i think by the time he's making that movie he's more mature and he understands like yeah i don't need the camera to go into anyone's mouth he's also talked about on that movie that he was like i know i have this reputation i want to challenge myself to move the camera as little as possible yeah but like by and large that is the sam raimi thing where he's like 
why should one thing happen when eight things could happen really quickly and it would like you know it'll be this like little overload of joy for the viewer and i I like it i was never happy when i was a teenage uh sam raimi fan until i saw the uh you know the zoom, the 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 the, the zoom in pull back. Uh, That's when shot, you know, shot. right? You're I needed it. Hands. I needed yeah. it at least once per movie, and I appreciate him for doing it as much as he did. Look, the week we're recording this, there has been a lot of Twitter piling on a a real underdog movie, a movie that has not gotten a fair shake called Spider Man No Way Home. This movie. Oh has been embarrassed so roundly. It was snubbed by the Oscars. No one's giving it any respect. Snubbed, you say? Snub, snub. Snub. Snub, snub. Do they not understand? It's so rude of them to not nominate it because people like that movie. But there, the last week or two, there's been a lot of people because there was a, a video that went out breaking down the VFX of the movie and sort of like revealing how hermetically that movie was constructed and all this shit and saying like, why does this look so bad? Why does a movie this expensive look so bad? Uh, and I don't mean to add on to this pileup, but when this movie was coming out, uh, the director did interviews where he said, like, because we're bringing Molina and uh, Defoe in, we were like, we need to have a Raimi cam. We had a Raimi cam. We established the language of the Raimi cam and we try to shoot certain scenes with the Raimi cam sensibility and get into the head of like how Raimi would move his camera around this. And it's not even that I feel like the movie fails to emulate that style it does not even feel like they are attempting it and who right. knows if all of that ended up on the cutting room floor it might where it's right. chopped to right. ribbons and it's little pieces that are unrecognizable but to that point when you're watching a Raimi movie like you say brennan they're within the first 10 minutes will be one of those moves where you go like okay it's him yeah hey, i feel at home now yeah. right and kind of no one else really knows how to pull it off the same way i have not seen that film mm -hmm. but uh, in fact, I had never heard of it, but um, it's a very you, it's it's a small little underdog. The way you describe it, it sounds like something I should probably check out, you know, something that may um, improve my soul a bit. Absolutely. David, can you uh, uh, read this thing about the, the Luma crane? Oh, for crying out loud. Yeah, of course. I mean, or yeah, paraphrase it. But I just think this is a very important story relative to what we're talking about right now. They wanted a Luma crane, a, a, a classic. Uh, you know what it's it's sort of the crane with the counterweight right you know you guys know movies better than me you guys have been yeah. on sets um you put the camera at the top you can pan and zoom with remote control you don't need a 200 pound person holding a camera right it, it's all lighter right mm -hmm. and uh, the studio's like no you, you you're playing with gadgets too much you can't have a luma crane they're like halfway through production at this point they're all right we're not getting budget. you another fucking you know <laughs> right. new invented camera no we're not doing this and so Sam had used that shaky cam in Evil Dead where they had like put the camera on a two by four and you have people running around with it, right? Like that's how they that's how they made all those crazy camera shots work in Evil Dead. But it's literally like two guys running, holding either side of a wooden plank with a camera like nailed to it. Correct. And so uh, with this shaky cam, we went running down a block. We had someone get out of a car. She started running. We run after her and there was nothing that looked like it. Uh, then the bad guy, Paul Smith, comes out and we turn around and we do a 180 degree move and we loop around and we run in the other direction. It's all this crazy, flashy stuff that they do, you know, basically for no money. The studio sees the dailies, calls him on the phone and says, how the fuck you, you, you were told no Luma crane. Like they assumed <laughs> like 
you must have slipped this by us. How, who gave you a Lumicrate? And they were like, we literally did that for 75 cents. Like It's that, a that piece awesome. of wood. Yeah. Right. Which is fucking great. Awesome. Like, I, I love that. Yes. 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 That That's the stuff in this movie that remains so infectious. I mean, I guess we should try to run through the events of this movie. Yeah, give a it a shot. Bit. Yeah. Uh, Br- Brandon is the person who's seen this the most, and Ben is the person who gave this uh, 10 bonks. Do, do you want to attempt to guide us? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me, so <laughs> I'm happy to walk you through it. A man is about to be executed. Oh, no. He's in the chair. He's, he's, being, he's being taken from his cell to the chair, and he uses this time. Does he seem, though, like that he is, you know, sort of accepting of this? No, he's still trying to get out of it. He's having fun. He is fighting it tooth and nail. He is yeah. against this. It's it's not a solemn sort of John Coffey walk to the, the no, big chair. No, he's, right. he's, he claims that he is uh, innocent. And so he's going to take this time, this walk, this drag, if you will, to the chair. Uh, he's going to take this time to tell us his story. And we've also like intercut the very beginning of this movie, these nuns silently driving in a fury, listening to the radio. Listening about, to the radio, which right, is telling this us. imminent execution. Yeah. The, the, the radio announcer is giving us all the particulars. And I didn't look it up. I don't know who this guy is. And I had forgotten about it. It's one of the things that made me love this movie. The guy dusting off the electric chair in slow motion and then grinning and presenting the chair as he comes through the door. That's just, I mean, that's just golden shit. That's very Hudsucker too. You know, it's just, it's just like you get this old guy with this face from, from, from wherever it's from. There's the guy in Hudsucker who paints the names on the door and, that's, and scrapes that's the them guy. off. Yes. Right. right. It's that right. beat. It's that beat. And it's so good. And it's in slow motion in, in this or, or he's just doing it very slowly. I couldn't tell, but, um, it's so good. And but just these sort of haunted character actors with like Easter Island head faces where you're just like, what is this guy's, what is this guy's life? And why does he seem to get so much perverse glee out of doing this horrible thing? Yes, they all do. I mean, they're all just hard for it. All of the, you know, the, the, the governor wants this to happen. Everyone behind <laughs> the glass wants it to happen. The Cohen yeah. brothers who are taking the pictures, they, they, everyone wants this guy dead. It's like an outing, though, too, you know? That's what's so fucked up, is that people were just going to executions like that. Yeah. And it doesn't even seem like it's family members who have some, you know, who want to see some sort of, uh, some sense of closure or justice. Uh, They they just are, you know, having a nice evening. No, the public hates the idea of this guy, and they want to see him fry. And it's funny, too, how how public the crimes, the crime wave, uh, actually was once you once you see it in uh, flashback uh, because it uh, to anyone who was witnessing it uh, very clear who was doing it yeah it, it doesn't it, not easily mistaken but uh, he he's seated in the chair and he finally gets to tell his story basically to us they're not listening and we find that he is tech guy he's the guy installing the surveillance cameras for these security uh, consultants, these guys who own a security company. They're sort of having like a Salino and Barnes moment where they're like kind of like splitting up, having been partners for many years. Oh, right, because because Bruce Campbell is going to turn it into, he's going to sell, the, the one partner is going to sell it out from the other guy, 
and Bruce Campbell, Ronaldo, is going to turn it into a, 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 a burlesque house of sorts, it would seem. And the one guy here, uh, Mr. Trend, who is the husband of Louise Lasser, is played by Edward Pressman, who also produced this movie, was like a humongous producer. He was the heir to the Pressman toy riches, like the board game and marble company. And he grew up a movie nerd. He was kind of like an original Megan Ellis, where he was like, I'm going to use my money to make good movies. And he produced like Sisters, Badlands, Phantom of the Paradise, uh, Das Boot, Conan the Barbarian. Uh, This is sort of coming at the end of his maybe original good run. After this, I mean, he produces true stories, but he also does the He-Man movie. Uh, he does he does some Morgan movies after this, but this is like his only real acting credit. Was he one of the um, producers that Campbell didn't get along with? I believe so. It's very bizarre. It's bizarre that he has this large of a role in the movie as an actor when that's not a thing he ever did. And that it was this contentious. Apparently, he played a lonely cook in Street Fighter. That is the only other acting credit I can find. Which he also produced like a yes. decade after this. That must yes. have been like his last, the last film he produced, no? No, he's still producing. Well, not still. But he did do like Bad Lieutenant, Portocol, New Orleans, and Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. Like, he, you know, he's done movies in recent years. Those are both because he produced the original movies. He might have gotten grandfathered in. But he produced, like, Fur, the Diane Arbus movie. Uh, yeah. Never Amazing Die Alone. Yeah, yeah, Party Monster, The Cooler. He's a wild career, if you dig into it. Uh, ben, ben, he produced the entire uh, Crow franchise. Oh, wow. That's... Wait, Crow franchise? You're saying... The Crow. Sure. Yeah, the movie The Crow, right? And I guess and there is... Had... Yeah, right. There's a bunch of other movies. It just that threw me off for a second. Like, franchise? But I guess you're, there's, like, a, a decent amount of, like, like straight to kind of video. Mostly straight to video, yes. Yeah, okay. I've never seen any of those. Are they good? Uh, the sequels, never seen them. The, the original is, is a special movie, I would say. But uh, the others, oh, not yeah. so much. Uh, anyway, uh, Crime Wave. Yeah, so what's happening in Crime Wave? You guys explain. I, I honestly, you guys are doing a great <laughs> job. I don't remember. I don't remember anything about the plot of this movie. And I watched it okay. two days ago. So Bruce Campbell's trying to break up the company. He is buying the company out from the the one guy selling out the other guy, and the guy uh, Pressman, the guy who Pressman is playing, Trend, Mister Trend, finds out and uh, hires these two exterminators to kill him. Which, by the way, I love the. I love the 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 machine that that Brian James uses. That he has a dial that he turns uh, for rats or men, and then later on in the movie, heroes. Come on, that's a great bit. That's a fucking great bit. Their look is incredible. The look is incredible. Goddamn, if they had just gotten, if they had just let him speak his use his actual voice. But then also the amount of sound effects every time they're on screen. Like there's that like extended minute. It's very busy. Shot. Yes. Right, where where Brian James is waiting for the elevator, chewing gum, and he won't stop cracking his neck and like clicking his teeth and shit. Every time, I think that's why it feels incomprehensible in so many ways because every time they're on screen, like David said, it's busy and it's busy to the point where it's like it didn't have to be a five minute wacky walky wookie section. This could have <laughs> right. been fucking three 
this could have been two and a half minutes. We got it. But they did not want to cut those guys. No, all the Evil Dead movies have, for how manic and how fast moving they are, they have like these moments where Raimi will allow things to breathe or reset for a moment. And this movie is like operating at this energy at all times. And there's so much stimuli at every single moment. It's like the little ashes in Army of Darkness. It's like it's an entire movie just populated with mini ashes. Right. And it's like the music is crazy and he's putting sound effects on it and the camera's doing crazy things and the actors are doing crazy things and the plot is dense. So these guys get hired to kill the one partner. Louise Lasser plays the wife of Trend. And they live across the street from the office, and she witnesses them going in. And uh, Trend goes across the street to show her that it's no big deal, nothing's wrong, to make sure, I guess, right, to... I don't, I don't quite understand why he, he does that. So she says, oh, he's in danger. Trend goes across the street to just to allay her fears and so that she, so that she doesn't call the cops. And while he's there, he sees that uh, Odegaard is dead. Uh, great shot cut there. Then Brian James uh, pops up and kills him too. Now, everything you're saying makes no sense. Just FYI. <laughs> As I'm saying it, I'm getting confused. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I, again, there are specific scenes that are very interesting to watch. Yes. But right. But like when you lay it out all end to end, I do wonder, it's like, was this the plan or is this more like the, the you know, sort of the butchered thing they ended up with? And at a certain point, they were just like, I don't know, just put it out. Like, let, let's stop worrying about everything flowing very logically together. I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I can read about the post-production. It's hard to tell because, I, I mean, I feel like when they do talk about it, when, like, when Bramie talks about it and Campbell talks about it, they don't talk about it as if, like, we had this perfect movie and it was taken away from us. They sort of talk about, it like, the production was a nightmare. We didn't totally know how to execute what we were doing. And then they took it away from us and made it worse. Right. I, I think they, like, learned some lessons in clarity from this movie. It's right. But this is not a situation where they're like, there is a perfect cut of that movie that exists. <laughs> right, right. Okay, we should talk about meeting the nerd kid dorky kid oh yes meeting the nerd kid mm -hmm. well he's installing video cameras in trends hallway uh-huh uh because he works for trend and um trend gives him a big speech at the door where he basically says you've got to uh you got to get yourself a girl it's the sort of quality of life priorities speech. Yeah, exactly. And then he goes downstairs. This guy, Vic, who is our, our hero, goes downstairs, sees a beautiful woman almost get run over by an exterminator truck. We'll mm -hmm. get to that. We'll get to that. And saves her. Or does he save her or just pick her up? Uh, he, he picks, just her, picks up. her up. Yeah. He just picks her up. But she's not that interested in him. She's not interested. And then Bruce Campbell, playing the role of Ronaldo the heel, shows up and asks her out uh, to a date that night. Jesus, this is an exhausting movie to summarize. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and we're not even that far into the movie. And like after this, this is, is the when first just like four minutes, a yeah. bunch of murders start to happen that Vic is the like, you know, being blamed for or whatever. Like also all these things happen uh 
everything happens on a corner. Everything happens catty corner to uh, the other thing, you know. So like the the apartment building is catty corner from the uh, nightclub uh, security, yeah, from the nightclub and from the security office uh, from the um, from that. So everything is taking place in this one, not even a block radius, just like one corner or three, you know, three corner intersection, basically. And that is very confusing. That is never very well established geographically. No, which also it's the cameras moving around so fucking. Yeah, much. there is no consist. There's no continuity. No one's there for all the money. They 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 definitely. I don't think had a script supervisor who was paying much attention. Yeah, because there's like some moment where she drops a pot from the window, but then the way that the camera moves, it's like just so confusing and like. It's like she was across the street and now she's on this side of the street. Yes. Like it, yeah. There's some stuff like that. Yeah. You don't realize that he's actually directly below her window at that time. It seems yeah. like he's yeah. across the street. Exactly. Yeah. It's a fucking mess. It's a fucking mess. <laughs> it's kind of a mess. I mean, I think we could even just say like they basically though go on some kind of date or like we should just talk about the nightclub section maybe the, before the we get to section, the hijinks. This is where my wife goes, oh, the mask. She's like, you know, because oh, it's sure. really interesting. It's a good yeah. call. So much like Smoking. the mask. Yeah. And especially with Bruce Campbell in there doing that, you know, that character. No, but you're, yeah, that makes it. The mask also takes place in kind of a world of gangsters that is not quite like our, right? Like in, a, in that weird sort of heightened reality beyond the fact that the, the mask is there, of course. Yeah. Exactly. Right, all the gangsters in the mask operate like 1940s gangsters, and it takes place in this odd, brightly colored metropolis at night. Right. Yeah. But they're like playing swing music. It's like what? Like, yeah. It, and dancing. It's weird. You are making me realize, yeah, how much the mask is kind of executing what they were trying to do with this movie in a way that was palatable to audiences by going like, well, there's a crazy supernatural explanation for everything. That's the thing, and that's why the that's why the normal Raimi car- camera stuff and absurdity doesn't work because there is no supernatural, right? There's no supernatural element. There's no demons flying or anything like that. And and there's no initial grounding element, none whatsoever. I will say also it 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 reminded me so much also of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was mm. only what two three years later, because uh, it's got yeah 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 like four years later maybe right yeah. It's that same, that same tone, that yes. same leaning into the slapsticky, the cartoon elements of it, and but the throwback. Yeah, and the throwback gangsters and the throwback. Um, yeah, that's all that sort of. Is, we feel that a lot in the uh, once we get to the nightclub, the Rialto. Is it called? Very um, good. A lot of the quotes you read. Very, very good, Brendan. Uh, five memory points. A Thank lot you. of the quotes you read from like Campbell talking about this movie is just sort of like we all maybe were too ambitious and too in love with the idea of like, what if we put together all these different genres that we like? And what if you had like a 40s noir film that had the energy of a Three Stooges comedy, but also like the shock of like a horror movie and all that sort of shit. And like a 30s Warner Brothers gangster picture, you know? Right. Everything just smushed together. But the comedy is very contemporary and very like... um. Uh, what's the, what's the like where you believe in nothing? God, I can't think of the the phrase. Like nihilistic. The term. It's very nihilistic. Yes. 
Yeah, it's like it's it feels very though of the moment, or like I don't know why. Like the the style of comedy is very like well, like everyone in this movie is kind of either stupid or bad, right? Like all the good people are dumb; they don't really understand what they're doing, and all the bad people are like really bad. And and yes, unlike Roger Rabbit Mask, which like would become huge hits, but had like a clean explanation for why the world is like this. Right. This movie just expects you to go like, and you're on the same wavelength as these guys, right? And it does feel like a movie that was written by them at like three o'clock in the morning, just like riffing off each other with their common reference base. If it worked, it would work. There are movies like this that grab you by the hand and race you through all kinds of mania and you go with it because you're on board for whatever, you know, because... Like you say, Griffin, maybe because there's one character you can identify with or one sort of emotional through line. Crime Wave might even work, I think, if the mystery of like, so why is this guy in the chair was a little more specific. But instead, it's kind of not like it's kind of the framing device is kind of irrelevant. Like, you know, because yeah. But I, but I agree with you that it doesn't feel like an ill-begotten movie. Like, it does feel like you understand what they were trying to do, and what they were trying to do was so ambitious and so alchemical that it was really hard to pull off before all these... It would have been hard to execute just on an artistic, creative basis before all these other factors come into play. Uh, Yes, right. So should we talk, though, about um, just basically meeting Bruce Campbell's character and, like, the heel and just all of the great fucking lines he is delivering, like, as this character... I just feel in very safe hands when he's on screen. Yeah. So do I. Exactly. And that's the that's the struggle with this movie is just like wanting him to be there more. My favorite line he says at the bar after he leaves her, uh, after after he punches out Vic, he's talking to that other woman at the bar and we zoom in on him from a distance and you hear him say, oh, the cab. Oh, no, no. Sorry. That's uh, that's uh, later when, when he's walking past the storefront window and he says the cab. You'll pay for that. I don't want to break a hundred, which <laughs> I mean, it's a line and you barely hear it. And it's great. The cab, you'll pay for that. I haven't seen you before. I love that. I in a woman. like that in a woman. Yeah. <laughs> great line. <laughs> it's a good line. It's it's so funny that Raimi was like, well, this guy's clearly my leading man. I'm going to write the leading man part for him. Right. And they write this part that like, from a modern perspective, you're like, it would have been weird to have Bruce Campbell play that part. But I'm even just thinking back to a couple weeks or months ago, whenever we recorded our fucking Evil Dead one episode, where he is so innocent and sweet and like soft and delicate in that movie relative to the sort of very self-aware Bruce Campbell we know today. And here they like throw him this consolation role and try to beef it up to get him on set. And in the process, accidentally create what then will become the dominant Bruce Campbell archetype, right? Like oh, what yeah. he plays in this kind of becomes his main stock and trade for the next couple of decades, whether it's done well or poorly. But like, like this is what they're casting him to do in Congo. You know, like this is the arched eyebrow, smug, punchable, but still funny kind of like glib, uh, arrogant macho dude. And then like Ash even turns into this more and more. Mm hmm. It is funny that there's this sort of like secret gift here in how hard Campbell kills this role that both like helps Raimi know how to use him even better going forward and also becomes the thing that people typecast him for. Such a good point. Yeah. 
But he is, yes. You're watching a guy who's just like so in the fucking pocket. Not only that, but he understands the tone of this movie perfectly, perhaps because he's got a really established relationship with Raimi and can tap into what Raimi wants in a way that maybe others can't. I don't know. And they're giving him all the best lines for that reason. Yeah. A lot of the best stuff happens in the in the in the nightclub um, setup. I will say that I'm going to segue into my favorite bit by getting back to the plot for a second. Ronaldo the heel and um, what's her name? Nancy, right? Nancy, Nancy, Ronaldo the heel and Nancy are on a date. It's not going well, as we uh, as evidenced by the first thing we hear. She says, "I'm not that kind of girl," and he says, "Well, with a little practice, you could learn to be." Yeah. Um, th- th- it's never a good sign that your date is going well. Uh, and then Vic shows up and basically crashes the date. Well, isn't it? it I've seen this uh, uh, 29 times less than you. But is it sort of that he was motivated by Trent's speech to be like, I, I have to chase after that woman. I need. Yeah, to, he's got. Right. Ta- yeah, exactly. He's got to that. He's got to take uh, the bull by the horns and he's got to right. go get the gal. This was like a, another weird budget thing was the cabin in the first Evil Dead cost them two thousand dollars to rent for the entire duration of the production. And this set for the Rialto cost them $30,000. Oh, whoa. And his whole budgeting of the movie was based on him knowing what things cost on Evil Dead. And then it's like, here's a location we need just for 10 minutes of the film. Their first offer is 10, and then they start upping the number and eventually it gets to 30. And everything just kind of escalated like that. And that's why they have to spend so much time in the nightclub, I, I, I imagine. Yes, and there's another thing where the person who owned the building demanded that all the extras be, like, members of his club. Is that right? What? A building, it had previously been a hotel. It was going to be turned to a retirement home. The first two offers from production were $10,000, $20,000, both of which were rejected. Then they agreed to $30,000 on the condition that the building's owners would be extras drinking martinis in the hotel ballroom. Literally the story of every shitty little movie I've ever made. Right. Is why are the producers here? Yeah. Right. The gift is that they didn't demand fucking dialogue. That's the worst version of that set, which you and I have both been on. My son here wants to be an actor. Right. Some, some, some guy in suspenders. <laughs> That's what I always say. Come on, you know, my son Jimmy here. He loves the movies. <laughs> He's funny. He's funny. Be funny. Yeah, tell him the joke right. you tell me, Jimmy. <laughs> doing the, uh, you know, come on, look, look at that face. Guy, you yeah. know, doing, making a frame with your fingers. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> what what happens later? I, I really like the sequence with the doors or the, how, whatever you would just, the, the walls. The right? doors is great. But the, the sequence in the, in the dance contest, because Ronaldo leaves her, stiffs her with the check. She has no interest in Vic, but she says, can you loan me, what is it, $36? Yeah. And he says, I would love to, but I don't have the money. And then the announcer says there's a dance contest about to happen. They hard cut to them doing starting the dance contest. You think there's going to be this whole number. And then there's a whip pan into the kitchen where they're just doing dishes while still dancing. That's my second favorite bit in this movie. 
it, it's one of the better. I mean, you saying where this movie fails is often with like the setup punchline verbal jokes. Mm-hmm. That whole exchange of thirty six dollars. I wish I never carry that amount of money around with me on my person to then the announcer saying that the prize money for the oh, dance the contest is, is exactly thirty six dollars. Right. Like, that's a pretty fun cartoon logic run of lines. It's so good. And then to get into the, you know, to take it all the way to the um, kitchen where they're washing dishes is great follow through. Okay. I have a question about this trope of washing dishes because you can't pay the check. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has anyone ever actually done that? (laughs) Truly, tell me one person that you have ever met in your fucking life that is like, I don't have any money. What am I gonna? Huh, what am I gonna uh, do? Put you me work to work here now. Yeah, you're <laughs> the dishwasher we file now. All your paperwork. Do you have an i nine? Here's my question: Where is the dishwasher? Does he get off the night? Like, are they? Why? I mean, did they just plan on always having someone not being able to pay the check on certain nights? Are they always one dishwasher short? In yeah, in order to accommodate for for dine and dashers. Attempted dine and dasher. Well, the dishwasher can always hold out hope that there's that someone will come to dine and to, to dine and dash, and then he'll get off early. You know, that's one perk. I've, I used to be a dishwasher, and that's something we thought about all the time. Really, you were always waiting, always waiting. Huh. Maybe some, maybe somebody will come and not have their thirty six dollars. I wonder if it's ref, a reference to some you know, silent film or some, you know, very famous bit in a film from so long ago we don't remember. Right, right. Like, it never actually happened in society, but it happened once as a punchline, and now it gets perpetuated as if we're riffing on the actual real-world occurrence. Yeah, and it was so, it was such a huge thing. This movie was so big and whatever, in, you know, 1929, that everyone talked about it for two years, but we don't remember the original. I say what we should do, listeners, is go to a restaurant, no money, no cash, nothing. Then when, you know, it's time to pay the check, be like, all right, I'll head in the back. I'm ready to do some dishes. (laughs) You know, roll up your sleeves and see how that goes. You probably will end up being arrested. Ben, (laughs) I agree. You absolutely should try this. Yeah. If not, at least start getting it going. Make it more pervasive so it makes sense. Right, you want to at least get the ball rolling so that when someone else asks for that, the restaurants will be like, yeah, sure. We know, we know about this, right? We've heard of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I found a, a what, what's it called? Cora, the like question answer website. Sure, of course, yeah. Uh, do restaurants allow someone to wash dishes as compensation if they cannot pay? Top answer, no, they won't. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? If you don't have the money to pay for a meal that you've eaten, one of three things will happen. One, the restaurant will ask you to leave something that you'll return for when you've retrieved the funds to pay them. Two, depending upon the mood of the owner, the amount of the bill, and the reasons that you've forgotten your method of payment, they may simply say forget it and come your meal. This will rarely happen, and no one should expect this to occur when they dine out. Uh, uh, option number three, they will call the police and have you cited or arrested for fraud. <laughs> oh, that's fraud? That's not theft. Oh, uh, they say mean, defrauding an innkeeper is a serious offense in a number of states. So you may find that your meal costs you far more than you had simply than if you had simply paid for it in the first place. I would love to go to jail for defrauding an innkeeper as long as they phrase it that way. 
right? DF, DFI. It's another DFI it's for Heinze over here. <laughs> I agree that Ben should absolutely try this. But no, you no, should no, go no. in and I, order no. the menu and be like, I'll give you a week of dishes. Like, you know, you, you, you go in there, you eat 18 courses, and then you're like, sorry. <laughs> like, how, how many dishes would the fettuccine Alfredo cost? Yeah, right. I negotiate <laughs> right. it. I'm like, yeah. all right, so if I want to get a dessert, can I maybe come like on Wednesday to do dishes for a couple hours if we add that on? It's basically your interview. It's your job interview is, is stealing a delicious meal. Hi, I'd like to work for this restaurant. I have no money. <laughs> I, I want to uh, leave a good tip. So uh, can, I, can I clean some cutlery as well? How many knives would it take to equal 20%? Uh, okay. Uh, so is there, yeah, anything else about crime? Well, but, yeah, explain that the door's falling. The most Looney Tunes kind of text Avery sequence of this movie like what why is that happening she at some point she runs she gets away from him she he's come up to god i keep having to go back she she gets away from crush who's trying to kill her because he witnessed um, he's she saw him kill someone Mm -hmm. and she gets away from him after a a whole series i'm amazed you want to skip the rug the rug pulling sequence no we can talk about the i cannot order these things in my brain that is the problem i do not remember what happens when it's not that we don't want to talk about them it's you're the only one who understands them (laughs) (laughs) right she gets away from crush she runs to the office where she thinks her husband is maybe still there, which is, I mean, she's delusional at this point. That guy's dead. <laughs> and um, she gets away from him. She gets into the back where apparently they have a demo of, I don't remember what it's called, Ben. Do you remember the hallway, the most secure hallway in the world or something like that? Yeah, the most secure hallway in the world, something to that effect. Where, uh, which she clearly knew about because it's her husband's company. And it's a series of doors that really it's just a door that leads to another door. It feels like the the get smart opening, like the oh, idea yeah. of it, this location so secure, you have to go through 18 different types of doors to get to the, the heart of the thing. But only the last one has a lock on it. Which, right. Of course. And uh, yeah, it's just a great. And then some sort of balletic music starts playing and it becomes a, a, a just a very Bugs Bunny. I, I love yes. that. Right. I love that too. Um, and the doors are all different colors and they all start falling on him uh, as he's chasing her. And so really to just tie it all together, because I, I think it, this plot is like whatever confusing is the <laughs> wife gets away, but then fall, goes into a box. She gets away from like these basically two maniacs, but she goes into a box that's like, you know, going to be mailed to Abu Dhabi or something like it's that joke. And then really oh, we right. have the the two, the couple, right? We can call them a couple, I guess, like whatever, though Vic and the girl after being done with dishwashing, they kind of run into these maniacs and then it's basically the sequ- a couple of sequences of them just like kind of fighting each other more or less, right? Is that kind of how to structure it? Huge freeway car chase that, that, that is 19 minutes too long probably. But but is very technically impressive. And when you read the reviews of the movie at the time, everyone sort of spotlights like even the most dismissive ones are like this end car chase kind of implies that this guy might have some talent. 
Yeah, exactly. This guy isn't an idiot behind the camera or anything. It's that's right. like it's, that's yeah. like when a new president bombs a new country and people say this is the day he became president. <laughs> that's that's what a car chase, well, a, a relatively well executed car chase is for for film critics. Sorry, David. No, it's true. That's that's what we're like. <laughs> um, I love when Vic goes up to the old guy, right, and he's like, "I need your car." He starts explaining something, and the old guy just goes, "Do you love her?" dealer that's such a fucking solid joke i think that's so funny it is and it should also crush at that point right i should be like cheering that's totally but yeah 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 yeah. this is vincent camby's quote from the new york times his review of this movie he said it's full of film knowledge and is amazingly elaborate for a low budget movie the only problem is that it's not funny one smiles at the inspiration of the jokes though not at their execution the chase that ends the movie is something of a technical defeat, but it remains as dimly humorless as a smart film student's essay on how to shoot a chase. And that's like sort of the most positive review it got. Right. It's kind of the reaction that 1941 got. Obviously, 1941 was on a much more massive scale. But that was the, the thing where they, the reviews were kind of like, this guy's obviously very technically accomplished. Why isn't this movie funny? Why is it kind of a right. drag? Like, you know, like, why is it yelling at me? Why is it a little too, and, you know, and that's, it's just hard to hit that, that carefree tone, I guess. But also, some people love 1941. Some people love Crime Wave. Yeah. And I support them. Look, here's some post-production stuff. Uh, they, the studio didn't like the movie. They said it should be told what? in flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. uh, they made them go to L.A. and do extensive reshoots, all the Hudsucker Penitentiary stuff, all of the bookends, right? They're like, that'll make it make more sense, which... I think that was a good call. I think it does sure. make the movie make a lot more sense. It gives I it a little imagine. more of a spine, right? Yes, yes. Um, they, they basically were like, it needs... Uh, we need a beginning and an ending that explains the middle, a.k.a. the movie you presented. Um, uh, Bruce Campbell says you know this is it was horrible it was like it was a very depressing time because I guess the what and this isn't you know this is what had not happened to them on Evil Dead they're presenting a rough cut to the studio and the studio is like well this doesn't work and right. Ramey and Campbell are thinking like, well, we'll figure it out. You know, give us a minute. And, it's and they're like, no, like, you no, 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 no. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Get out of the way. We're going to deal with this. That was the one test you had. Right. And you failed it. They don't let Joe DeLuca, who does the incredible score for The Evil Dead, work on this movie. The studio uh, hires a different composer. Right? And they, I hate they, the music. I hate the music. In this it's, it's, yeah. The music is kind of annoying. Yeah. Yeah. The thing DeLuca said was that when he was. Low Duca. I'm sorry. The thing Lo Duca said when he was pitching the producers on his take for it was like, with these sorts of parody films like Airplane, they play the music really straight. Like, they're not doing a comedy score. They're doing a score that sounds like it's out of an Irwin Allen film, and I think you need to do the same with this. And they got scared off by him saying, I'm going to play the music really straight. He did say that Raimi brought him back to do like the final reel or two of the movie. So the car chases his music right. again. They ended up letting him do a little bit of it sort of away from watchful eyes. But yes, the score is not great. It's a little too much. The movie kind of was taken to film festivals around the world. It opened in Britain like a year before it came out in America. Things like it, it just came out in like dribs and drabs. Uh, Bruce Campbell said they had a very nice screening at the Seattle Film Festival where the host came on stage before the movie and was like, this movie is silly. Prepare to watch a silly movie. Mm -hmm. And Campbell's like, that was the only good reaction we got. And I think it's because the audience was 
well prepared for what they were about to watch. It is wild. I mean, when we talk about movies that have like bad marketing or things like that, it does really affect the way people perceive movies, the frame that they're like put within where a guy can get up on stage and use the word silly 30 seconds before the movie starts and it will play okay. Uh, And Bruce Campbell also said that was the screening that his mom was at. Yes, that's right. So that she likes the movie and he is like grateful that she saw the only time it ever played well with a crowd. Right. What's it called? Embassy dumped the movie uh they did not give it a proper release they had a a deal with hbo so it needed to get a perfunctory number of days in theaters in different cities in order for it to get whatever the pre-agreed hbo amount was so they released it in like random cities Uh, they released it in kansas and alaska uh which is funny it did do a run it it screened in seven theaters total apparently it did do a two-day run in new york city (laughs) two days two days can't even give it a whole weekend no and the two days were wednesday and thursday (laughs) and and, but with all this said like you said like the reviews were not like cruel like they were all basically like this thing is funny in way you know in moments and interesting it just doesn't totally work like it was like kind of a like it's funny the um the can be review you quoted Griff mm-hmm. uh references eating Raul the Paul Bartel movie which is one of the greatest movies of the eighties and he's like there's a guy who knows how to make a cartoon on screen that's funny like that guy understands how to present the aesthetic and present the jokes and all that and like he's like and Raimi's kind of going for that but he's not getting it right and Kempi's like Bartel's the only one who knows how to do this everyone else is failing and they're also a lot of the reviews have the exact same tone you see in like raising Arizona reviews a year or two later than this, where you're like, we get it. It's impressive. Do you have anything to say? You know, they're sort of like this movie is more storyboarded than it is directed. Look at all your references. We get it. You're very smart. You're very clever. You have a lot of energy. Is there any perspective here? Yeah. David Edelstein kind of liked it in the village voice that uh, called it a Jerry Lewis extravaganza about serial killers. You know, you know, some people kind of got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, obviously, like we say, it's the movie that nobody wants to talk about. They, it, it burns Remy so badly that he's like, I guess I'll make the evil dead again. Like, I get, that's the only right. thing I can the do. The thing he like, actively yeah. resisted the first time. But I, I, having seen this now, and we recorded these episodes out of order. We did the three evil deads first, weirdly. Not, not intentionally, but we just did the one, two, three. No, we did all three evil deads in a row for whatever weird reason are now the filling in the gaps of the movies in between the evil deads. But um, it does, this movie in between really helps clarify the leap in Raimi's style between Evil Dead 1 and 2. Not just, I think, the confidence and the sort of like focus of it, of knowing he cannot let the thing get ripped out of his hands again, but also that he is incorporating more of the manic comedy of this movie into Evil Dead 2. Like, it right. feels like he wants to prove that he can make the cartoon movie work and not just do another, you know, horror movie again. I'm happy it exists. I guess that's I my too. take on Craig. And I'm happy Ben loved it. And obviously the Brendan has such a soft spot for it. Here, here's my genuine takeaway from this movie. I want to watch it again. Like, I want to, for as yeah. much as I think it's flawed, 
watching it the first time, I was like, ah, this sucks that I'm only watching this for the first time and I'm not going to have as good of an understanding of this as Brendan does. Like, <laughs> I want to I dig through this movie enough that I can sort of make sense of it as opposed to now where I'm just like, I'm really carried over by the energy and the style of this thing. I'd like to see it in a theater. I know that's not something that happens often, but like that might be fun to try and lock in with it more in a dark room. It was like a little... You know, it wasn't perfect to watch this at like 10 a.m. You know, no. one morning when I'm just kind of like sitting down with my coffee. I don't know. Uh, Brendan, are there any larger Raimi thoughts you want to share here since this is the one episode you get to appear on? LRTs? I get to have an LRT? Yeah. If you want to throw out an LRT. Um, larger Raimi thoughts. I th- I don't know. I think we, I think we. Is Darkman still your favorite? Like, is that, or no, that was your entree. But like, what's your. What's your top Remy? That was my entree. I still love Dark Man. I, I watched Dark Man as recently as, you know, eight years ago, and I think it still fucks. Yeah, it fucks. Um, pretty darn hard. Bruce it Campbell, very end, last shot of the movie. No, it's not my it's not my favorite Raimi anymore. And and when I stopped watching Sam Raimi films, you know, I, I did I did it with the vengeance. I'm interested in in what happens when you guys get to uh Jesus, the Oz movie. I, I never I never even saw it. Um, Brennan, it's the only movie he's made in the last ten years. Right. But it I and I never I, I couldn't even bring myself to 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 watch it. So I, there is something about the Raimi with unlimited resource that felt to me like a with like a such a huge budget movie and that that I just didn't see it being good, ha- having seen all of mm-hmm. his films, and I don't know. It's like this is an interesting film to talk about because it's the first time he had to work with, you know, a, a budget and producers who didn't give a shit about his passion and his and and his particular vision. And then, you know, once he gets into the the Spider Man, the Spider Mans of it all. That's kind of the world he lives in. Yeah. But what's weird about it is, it, it, like, you go like, well, and then, of course, he had this transformation to being this big blockbuster filmmaker. And you're like, he made three Spider-Man movies, two of which he's, like, proud of, one of which he kind of is always apologizing for. He did one sort of throwback, smaller horror movie, and then one more big blockbuster. And that's been the last 20 years of his career. And now he's returning yeah. for the first time in 10 years to make another Marvel superhero movie. Like, you almost expect that, oh, he got sucked into the Spider-Man thing, and then he made, like, four more big movies like that. Right. No, Drag Me to Hell is great. Drag Me to Hell, you either expect that he would make more small movies like that, or that he would make three more movies like Oz. And it's sort of the classic, like, Burton-y, like, he just got sucked into this system and swallowed whole. And instead, he just seems a little heartbroken and has been sitting on the sidelines. But that's why Drag Me to Hell is so frustrating, where I'm like, you literally did the thing that we asked these big shots who then get kind of sucked into blockbuster world to do, which is basically like, you know, sure, make the giant movies work in the, at the top echelons of the studio system, but then use that clout to occasionally, you know, go off. You make a mid-budget movie. It makes everyone some money. It's good. No one's mad. He did that. It worked. Like it was, we'll talk about this later. It was successful. Yeah. And he didn't do it again. And not, no one else does it. Like it's, it's just odd. I mean, I know he produced... And he, you know, gives the spotlight to other directors like when he's doing that. And that's that's like 
that is defensible. Like that, that's a real thing. Yeah. But you think about within all those ghost house deals, it's like they're producing two or three movies a year. You could just imagine he goes like, and I'm going to direct one of them. And no one would object to that. And what's more surprising about it is in all the different types of sort of blank check career narratives that we've covered on this show, Drag Me to Hell is like this very rare example of a filmmaker who successfully goes home again. Right. Like right, goes to the upper right. echelons and then is like, I'm going to make like a smaller movie like I did at my the beginning of my career. And almost always that doesn't work. It, they, they can't go backwards, you know, and you either get the Peter Jackson thing where it's like, I don't know how to make something for under one hundred and fifty million dollars anymore. Anything I adapt is going to become huge and unwieldy. Or they try to like roll back and act like they're a younger, less knowledgeable filmmaker. And the movie feels like it has artificial breaks on it or something but drag me hell totally fucking works and it's like you did that that worked you did oz that didn't work and then he just spent a decade going like i don't really know what to do anymore well yeah let's sh- shall we play the box office game griffin i have some final thoughts oh ben boy. kick off <laughs> damn because we we birthdayed we birthday card the shit out of that fucking plot it's all right though whatever i just feel like birthday card the shit out you, of you you, you mean birthday sign right like you whatever mean the, the, yeah we, big yeah, b yeah, yeah, right. and then it's like we fucking are just trailing no, off i like the i like this term of like making something so quick it could fit inside a birthday card all right it's funny when after they have this terrible i guess date or whatever she's just yelling at him no bright side no bright side <laughs> i felt that I also felt when, you know, the little rat guy is like, sadly, you broke my shocker. Like he really, whoever did that in the VO booth crushed. You know what? That reminded me, Brian James hiding in her apartment while Reed Bernie has his eyes closed and he's literally right next to him, like taking the coat from him mm-hmm. and going, oh, don't yeah. come in yet. Yeah. That bit crushes. Yeah. That bit crushes. It's a bit crusher. It's a bit crusher. Speaking wow. of bit crushers, it's a BC. the rat guy rides the big rat that's on top of their truck. That fucking rips. <laughs> big, 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 big rat in general. Rip. Everything with a big rat. Yeah. The the overextended wind up too for the fact that the guy's gonna get knocked out by the uh, the bridge. Like uh-huh. how long they belabor that is really fun. yes yeah yeah. And then I'll just say lastly because I think. Um, the end is such a funny button that it's got to get shouted sequence. out. Oh, oh, it's maybe the best joke in the entire movie. I, I, the final... I truly, I think it was like the maybe the one time where I really like, like really lolled. You're talking the newspaper. Guess. Yeah, newspaper is like I'm. I was. I just. I wanted to shout because like to me, it's like maybe one of the funnier ways of I've seen using that like gag. It's a very Preston Sturges thing. I feel like he does gags like this a number of times, but all the nuns show up in time right before the switch is going to get flipped. They're all freaking out. They hold the information to exonerate him, but they've taken this vow of silence so they don't know whether to speak or not. And then the guy sort of, like the governor goes like, too bad. The guy's ready to switch the flip. And then it cuts to like spinning newspaper as the flip goes down. Uh, Flip the switch. What am I saying? Hero executed, and you're like, that's a bleak ending. And then the camera goes down, dot, 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 almost none for a 40 year vow of silence. That's a perfect joke. Yeah. Yes. But did you stay tuned for the post credit sequence? No. What's the post credit sequence? 
Yeah, it's uh, uh, Louise um, Louise Lasser in a box in wherever she got shipped to Sri Lanka or something. Uruguay. I'm looking Uruguay. at this oh, right Uruguay. now. Um, wow. Uh, and it, you don't even see her. You just see the box on a mountaintop shaking and her going, hey, let me out of here. You know, it's, this uh, is I like this. This is the post credit sequence. It doesn't really like tee us up for a sequel. So but uh, but maybe it does. Maybe do it now. Maybe that. What if Ramey was like a back? Crime Wave 2, baby. <laughs> right. And the Coens were like, we're on board. And Reed Bernie was like, I'm hotter than ever. I'm swinging in. <laughs> Bernie's it's Crime here. Wave 2, but it's a horror movie. It's a horror yes. version of Crime Wave. Right, right. They go in the opposite direction of Evil Dead. Yes. This time it's brutal. Well, I want to play the box office game mostly. And, and shout out, of course, to Mark Yuvari. We're going to keep shouting him out. Who uh, Blanky, who programmed uh, boxofficega.me the website where there is now a Wordle-style box office game that you can play along with every day. That's incredible. Right. So I'm just very excited about this one because it is literally the box office game of my birth. This is it. Yeah, wow. We've never done it before. I will probably never do it again looking at the new movies this week. So, Army of Darkness was my birthday weekend, but not of the year I was born. I don't think we've done that Right. You haven't done that one yet. Uh, Totally random, but... Here we go. Of course, Crime Wave opening number 24 at the box office Ooh. with $3,000. So let's not Ooh. let's not talk about that. But it's um, not bad, actually. Yeah, All considering, sure. actually. Not better bad. than any movie I've been in. Well, same, unfortunately. Right. Uh, we've got number one. Mm-hmm. It's a fantasy film. Okay. I would say it's a film. I think I'm going to triple check this. Yeah, it was a disappointment. Like uh, this, because this was a pretty... A spectacular movie um, from a very big director, and it didn't actually do that well. Uh, Is it Willow? It's not Willow. It's the other one. Legend? It's Legend. It's Ridley Scott's Legend, which is not an entirely successful movie, but it is one of the fucking coolest looking movies you'll ever see. Yes. Yes. It's it's just kind of incredible that that's like the one time... Cruz like fundamentally put his chips down in the wrong place you know it like I, he's obviously made worse movies but that's a he good just, movie yeah, yeah yeah but it right it was a bad career decision for him but on paper it wasn't at all it was you know Ridley Scott coming off a of Blade Runner is making a fucking fantasy action movie like yeah. you're the star with a big sword like it it should it should work but he's like weirdly bad casting for that movie, I would say. Like, it doesn't play to his strengths. He doesn't totally. He makes sense in that he's very pretty. And like, that's sort of the vibe. But uh, no, he's he's not well cast. Uh, Tim Curry, obviously, sort of the main event of Legend. Have you seen Legend, Brendan? Oh, yeah. That was a big uh, HBO movie for me when I was a kid. Yeah, exactly. Good HBO movie. I, I, I got to clarify, I, it feels like him putting his chips on the wrong place only because it's maybe the only movie Tom Cruise was in post-risky business that doesn't feel like a Tom Cruise movie. Where you're just like, oh, and he's in it as an actor. It's the year before Top Gun. It's the one in between risky business and Top Gun. It's wild. Top Gun's the thing that makes him Tom Cruise. 100%. It's, it's in between... Those early Tom Cruise appearances like Risky Business and All the Right Moves and The Outsiders where you're like, oh, it's like Baby Cruise and Top Gun where you're like, Tom Cruise, the movie star. Like, it's the one in between. He needed to go to he, need, he needed to go to the brother. He needed to go to the brother to get he needed. He, he picked the wrong Scott the picked first the time. wrong brother. Yeah. Um, so, look, mm-hmm. I like Legend, but it's it's number and it's number two in its second week. 
but it's only made eight million dollars. Wait, I have a procedural. I have a procedural question. Are these just for Griffin? No, no, no you, you are allowed to in. jump the fuck oh, okay. in. Okay. Swing in if yeah. you want. Okay, copy that. Number two at the box office is a comedy that, again, I thought of as kind of a flop, but it wasn't. It was a, a very solid hit starring one of the sort of major comedy stars of the 80s who is, you know, is, is going to... In the 80s, is he was a comedy Fletch? star. It's not Fletch. I'm like I'm calling him a comedy star of the '80s, but that's a little deceptive in that he's going. He leaps to much more of like a mainstream. So is it a Robin Williams? Not Robin Williams. Huh? He makes a bigger leap to mainstream in the '90s. Is it an SNL guy? No. Although he is a famous SNL host. Is it Tom Hanks? Is it Splash? It's not Splash. Is it It, Tom Hanks in? It is Tom Hanks. It's is not it, Bachelor Party. Is it Joe versus the Volcano? It's not Joe versus the Volcano. That was a flop. That's too late. Like that, right. that one actually did badly. Huh. Yeah. Uh, so is the dog it, movie? No, it's, it's too not early Turner and Hooch. Turner, 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 Turner. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Where is it in his career? It's not, it's not big, is it? Not big. This no, is the year before big, I believe. Okay. This movie is a hit, though. This movie made $37 million, a totally solid $10 million budget. Uh, and he's it's not starring- Splash. It's not Splash. He's starring alongside a sitcom star. Oh, is it the Shelley Long movie? It is. Uh, oh, the Money Pit? The yes. Money Pit. The Money ah, Pit. They bought yes. this house and they got to refurbish it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I can do a second shout out to uh, a friend of the show, Connor Ratliff. Uh, when I was in the hospital recovering from my uh, organ surgery, he uh, FaceTimed me with... Um, he had ordered a promotional money pit uh, a greeting gar- card that was yeah. like a baby announcement card to announce the arrival of this summer's funniest hit or whatever the fuck, which I, I, Connor reading that was so funny to me that I was truly like I had stitches and was trying not to laugh and I had to hang up on him. And then he sent me it uh, like two weeks later. So I now have in my bathroom just taped to the wall this fucking money pit promotional we're announcing a, a new hit comedy card and I still didn't get the name of the movie. Right. Have any of you seen the money pit? I have never seen the money pit. I know the money pit as an expression. I know that it's a movie about them trying to refurbish a house, but I've never seen it. I've never seen it either. No, I've seen the. I saw the trailer a lot as a kid, but no, never saw it. I know people who defend it. I know people who are very pro money pit. I think it's it's Shelley Long like right off of leaving Cheers, right? Like she's yeah. still in the sort of like the, the she's bouncing out of Cheers. People are like, oh, is Shelley Long going to be the thing, right? You know, like she she hasn't quite uh, started to fall off. Um, and, you know, Tom Hanks, charming. Well, Tom Hanks, very charming. It is interesting how much Shelley Long is framed as one of those great examples of like an actor who didn't know how good they had it. And they were on this hit show and they left and look what they got for it. But she had like a pretty good run of hits right off of Cheers. It didn't last. Yeah, yeah. But she had like three or four successful movies in a row right off of Cheers. Yeah. Well, Outrageous Fortune. That was like a successful enough movie with that Midler. Yeah. No, she had a little run there. Okay. Yeah. It's a funny movie. I watched it uh, not all the way through. It was on TV. I just wanted to say there's a funny bit where Tom Hanks, he gets kind of stuck inside a rug that goes through a hole in a ceiling so that he doesn't fall through and he gets just stuck suspended there. And then he's there for hours and hours and hours. And then later they're fighting the couple, you know, she comes home 
And she's like, oh, you really want me to help you get out of this? And then he falls all the way down really far and hurts himself. Classic. Because it's a money pit. That sounds money pity. No, it does. It's very <laughs> Classic money pit. Classic money pit. All right. Number three is not a movie I'm, init- I'm immediately recognizing. Nobody yell at me about that, please. Okay. Um, okay. It, it is a... Okay, it's an action thriller. It's from a famous kind of, you know, notorious 80s, 70s, 80s, you know, genre film company. So, you know, not one of the major studios. It's a canon movie? It's a canon film. Okay. Uh, okay. And it's got, you know, a, a very canon film star sort of on the back end of his career huh. and a title that is like a famous expression. Uh, it's not a Chuck Norris. No. Is it a... um? Is it a Charles Bronson? It's a Charles Bronson. Okay. And the title is an expression. Uh, it's called You Win Some, You Lose Some. <laughs> uh, look, what can I tell you about this movie? Uh, it's from Jay Lee Thompson, uh, who I think did a Planet of the Apes. He obviously yes, did the original. I think he did the last there. one. Yeah. Uh, it's got Kathleen Wilhoit, uh, who we all know, of course, from her work. In ER and Gilmore okay. Girls. Okay. Uh, it's, um, look, Charles Bronson is playing an antisocial LAPD detective. Can you give us uh, a hint about the saying? What kind of saying it is? It's not a saying exactly. It's like a phrase that means things will always turn out like the worst possible way. Live and let live. All right. The movie is called <laughs> Murphy's Law. Murphy's oh. Law. Well, David, that was the hint you give were trying me a to break. give, but doesn't fucking Interstellar, your most beloved movie of all, correct that yes. interpretation of Murphy's Law, not saying the mo- the worst thing that could happen will happen, but that anything that could happen will happen. That in Interstellar is him being nice to his daughter. Murphy's Law is anything that can go wrong will go wrong. That is the classic uh, thing. Of course, it is only a Christopher Nolan movie where a character would be upset about being named uh, after a phrase or whatever the fuck yeah. that, that storytelling device is. I love Interstellar, to be clear. Yeah, uh, Murphy's Law. Look, Murphy's Law seems like a blast, I gotta say. Yeah, looks You cool. know, Charles Bronson, he's a hard-bitten cop. His w- ex-wife has become a stripper and he's mad about it. <laughs> um, His career is going nowhere by drinking and then he is framed by an ex-con so he starts killing people. Hmm. Uh, to deal with that. Uh, I'm not going to... Yeah, okay, so there you go. Okay. Um, also could have just said, you know, like, Murphy's Law was like a ska band. Too. You could have just did, said Murphy's Law was like we a ska We all could have said that. We all could have said that. And actually, we failed you, Ben, and I'm sorry. It is funny. I'm sorry. I'm just looking here, but Murphy's Law is one of three Charles Bronson thrillers that comes out in the year in between Death Wish 3 and Death Wish 4. The man was churning them out. And it's, and it's a Death Wish plot is basically right absolutely also yeah. charles bronson is a punk band we all knew that ben <laughs> it didn't seem number, like it i didn't number, hear anyone else bring it up <laughs> number four at the box office yeah. is a comedy sequel a comedy sequel in 1985 in this economy in this economy <laughs> okay was the sequel a flop i feel like a lot of comedy sequels were at this time Huge success, $12 million budget, $107 million worldwide. This was a part of a hugely popular series of comedies. Okay. And that did fall off over the years. Is it Police Academy 2? It's not Police Academy 2, 
but it is huh. Police Academy something. Oh, oh. okay. <laughs> Police Academy 3. And what's the subtitle on that one? Fuck. Okay, so Citizens I always on patrol. Uh, No, Citizens <laughs> on Patrol, of course, is Police Academy 4. Okay, so is, sorry. is this their first assignment? No, that is, of course, two. Police Academy 2. <laughs> so three so is... So what happens in between a first assignment and being on patrol? It's back to training? They had to go back in training. You gotta go back to training, You gotta guys. go back in training. <laughs> yes, this film directed by Jerry Paris. Never get it right. As many times as Jerry we try, Paris? I always fuck up. It's, it's, it's a Gare Pair pick. Uh... <laughs> It's Police Academy 3. Huge hit. Still, Huge everything's hit. still going great for Police Academy at this point. That, that is one of those things where if you look at 80s or 70s comedies, it's like the first one, huge hit, $100 million. The second one, moderate hit, $20 million. Like there'd be this huge drop off. Police Academy Street stayed strong until like four. Uh, yes, exactly. I like that guy where he does sound effects. You, wait, there's a guy in Police Academy who does sound effects? Yeah, no, David, it's crazy. So he'll be You're like... You're thinking of a different movie. Ben, if this happened in Police Academy, I'd remember it. No, no, it definitely <laughs> happens. Trust me, it comes up. I'm pretty sure a lot. But David, he'll be like, you'll, you know, like it's like if you close your eyes, it's like, wow, is he going up in an elevator? But he's not. No, no one could do that. No one could do that with just the the human mouth and throat. No one could do that. Not only that... Ben, if it were in the movie, I assume it would just be a cameo. Certainly, you could not build a major character <laughs> across all the films whose primary characteristic is making sound effects like he's in an elevator. It's in the movie, and it's seamless. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> every time. Seamless every time. All right, look. Number five at the box office is not a film I know. Okay. Um, it it's is a, a rom- It's a romantic drama starring two pretty major stars, two Oscar hmm. winners. Yeah. Here's the more interesting thing. It's directed by the husband of the lead actress. But, and this guy, you might, you'll know him, Griff, but he's not known as a director. He's more known for his, uh, his work in, in another you know, cinematic field. His, his craft. Is he a writer? No. Is this a Caleb Deschanel movie? No. no I'm trying to think. No. Married Good to guess. the Oscar-winning star. But that type of person, you're saying. Right. He was a production designer, mostly. He directed movies. Okay. Okay. So is it a Jack Fisk movie? It's a Jack Fisk movie. Cool. Okay. So it's Famously, basic? you know, worked with... Uh, yes, this is SpaceX is in the film. Yeah. yeah you know, worked with Malick's, James Malick. Right. You know, Brian De Palma, a lot of... Okay, uh, right. okay. Um, so you know, Jack Fisk... Anderson later in life. Mm-hmm. Sissy Spacek, you don't know it... The other, the male lead is also an Academy Award winner. Recently? Uh, like recently in 1986. Let's see. When did he? Yes. Uh, oh, you know what? He hasn't won his Oscar yet. He wins an Oscar mm. in 1988. Is it Hoffman? No. Is it Hackman? No. Great no, guesses, no, he won no. for... He already won, Unforgiven. right? For French Connection. 88. Wins Who wins in 88. I'll tell you this. He won for Best Supporting Actor in a comic film. A oh, movie. it's a Klein movie? Kevin Klein. It's Sissy Klein Spacek. Spacek in a Fisk picture? A Fisk-ture? About two people. Oh, no, I'm sorry. About a famous photographer played by Sissy Spacek who has been traveling around the world uh, in a sailboat, I think. And then she comes home to Maryland. Brendan. Hello. The, Mar- the Maryland coast. And uh, meets her high school sweetheart, Kevin Klein, who's married, but romance ensues. So it's 
clear that none of us know what this movie is. Looks like Bonnie Bedelia plays the third wheel. That's what I'm just telling you. Of course. What's this Bonnie called? Bedelia. Always. Yeah, Bonnie Bedelia. Uh, the movie is called Violets Are Blue. Yep. I absolutely never heard of this. Never heard context. of it. Yeah. It I mean, I don't think it went over very well. It doesn't look like it got any Oscar nominations or any nominations I'm at all. Klein, I'm a Kleiny, and I, I never heard of this film. You call yourself Brendan refers to himself as a mountain climber because he is oopsie daisy. <laughs> uh, some other films in the top 10. Uh-huh. You got Gung Ho, uh, the very popular Michael Keaton, Ron Howard comedy that is now unwatchable. Aged perfectly, like a fun <laughs> Tastes even better. You go put it back in there for another 10 years. Japanese people are so random. Uh, which is one of two Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel scripts in the top 10 because they also wrote The Money Pit. You've got Critters, a new line classic, right? A fun little horror movie. Yep. Uh, You've got Wise Guys. That's a De Palma movie, right? Yes, with Piscopo. I've never seen it. That is one of the few De Palmas I've never seen. Yes, Joe Piscopo and Danny DeVito. I mean, sounds fun. They're Wise Guys. You You know Dennis Farina's in that too. Just somewhere. Uh, uh, Kaitel's Kaitel in it. is in it. Come on, give me Farina. Dan Hedaya is in it. The wildest one is that Captain Lou Albano is in it. Oh, nice. Wow. Frank Super Vincent, Mario Ray himself. Sharkey, Patty Lapone. I'm not seeing any Farina. We could dig deeper. Sad. It's also no. written by George Gallo of uh, fucking uh, Midnight Run. Yes. Wise guys, so that's in the top. Pretty in Pink, the John Hughes film, mm. The Color Purple, uh, Steven Spielberg's. You know, we got some some Oscar leftovers here. Color Purple, Hannah and her sisters. The only other thing I want to point out is this was also the first week uh, in America for Three Men and a Cradle, oh. aka Trois Hommes et un Coffin. Wow, uh, which of course is the French movie that was remade as Three Men and a Baby. Uh, next, the next year, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Directed by Leonard Nimoy. It is directed by Leonard Nimoy. I just, I'm digging into the Wise Guys cast just to definitively prove that uh, Farina isn't in it, although it does feel like a movie Farina would be in. Mm-hmm. Both of Scorsese's parents are in it. Oh. That's, that's fun. Cool, that's, that's, you know, the, 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 the right, those, those guys having fun. Charles and Catherine Scorsese are in it as birthday guests. We love it. I should see Wise Guys. That's truly like the only De Palma I've never seen. Wow. Well, you know what? I, have, I haven't seen the, um, the last one he did, the, the one with Nikolai Kosterwaldo or Domino. I never saw that. I should see that. Too. Oh, geez. Yeah. The, yeah. You know, the thing that just came out that he, the minute it was released, he was like, I just own this film, <laughs> which is just his vibe these days. You haven't played Domino yet. I haven't played Domino yet. But uh, yeah, so that's, I, I think, a very fun box office game. A lot of weird stuff, a police academy. A Tom Cruise movie. You know, it's got it's got it all. It's got it all. Uh, Heinze. Sir. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a goddamn delight. Is there anything specific you want to plug? I know you've been doing more music recently. You're on Lock and Key, but you also have music stuff coming up, right? Uh, I'm just playing shows around town um, and and writing new songs. So, you know, nothing to plug yet, really. New record soon, probably. I don't know. Well, but let's see if Brendan Hines is coming to a town near you. He's probably not. How do you feel about Christmas music, Brendan? Oh, that's a big question. Um. Okay. Um. Christmas music, I'm fine with, provided it was recorded. Pr- 
prior to, I don't know, I'm just arbitrarily pick a date. Let's say prior to 1965. Well, here's a, here's a question for you, Brendan. Do you have any feelings on the speed of Christmas music? The speed, uh, the tempo? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, I like a waltz. I like a Christmas waltz. Okay, we're in, we're getting in the right territory. I got this whole yes. little thing going. Been putting out a slow Christmas album every year. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's Christmas music, but slow. I love it. Like like slow, like sexy. No, no, no. Well, slow. Like really <laughs> slow. <laughs> Throttle down, baby. Right. Year one was just taking Christmas tracks and like chopping and screwing them. Year two was hiring people to record new tracks at an incredibly drawn out pace. I love this. Okay. All right. We'll talk more offline. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're the best, Brandon. Thank you, guys. You're a river to your people. I appreciate no. you letting me be on this. God, I've been waiting for someone to say that to me. You're the coolest, and uh, and this was a blast. And thank you for helping me understand the movie Crime Wave, to be honest. I I thank you for helping me understand. I've never been able to talk about it out loud before, to be honest. Like <laughs> I never had anyone to talk about this movie with, and that's that's true. I do just want to reset. You are an incredibly cool person. And I feel like whenever we hang out, you're trying to convince me how much of a dork you are, which That's you simultaneously are. Both things are true. Uh huh. But it's I'm a not surprising cool. fact. I'm not cool. I'm not cool. You are, though, despite how hard you try to not be cool. Okay. okay. You are I'm very cool. Not cool. Okay. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please I'm remember. Cool too. You're very cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're very cool, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> Take us out. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. David texted this morning about the fact that subscribe is permanently banned from Apple Podcasts, and they want to say follow, but I'm going to keep on saying subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media helping make the show. JJ Birch, Nick Loriano for our research. Alex Barron and AJ McKeon for editing. Uh, Leigh Montgomery, the Great American Novel for our theme song. Uh, Joe Bowen, Pat Reynolds for our artwork. Go to blankcheckpod.com. For all the stuff. That's where all the stuff is now. I don't have to plug it separately. Yep, you don't have to. Tune in next week for Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, with special guest John Hodgman. We can say who the guest is because we banked that episode up. We got it in the can. Back-to-back pick episodes. And you can go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where we're uh, returning to the Matrix and doing Matrix commentaries. And as always, mm -hmm. I spent the last like 10 minutes Googling to see if I could find a picture of this money pit card so I could read it without going to my bathroom. But you just have to take my word for it. It's so fucking fun. It's fucked up. What's fucked up? It's that fucked I up. didn't do that? That you yeah. fucking failed me, you guys. Like I don't know ska bands, Ben. I'm not, you're, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. Well, isn't that convenient <laughs> for you, David? <laughs>